This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 250th episode, we're featuring The Bone Wars, which was a request by Allison on our Patreon. There's no news <laughs> in a rare twist of events. And that's because I'm calling this episode Sabrina Ricci's Hardcore Bone Wars because it is a crazy amount of information about The Bone Wars. It'll probably be at least two hours long when we're done with this. Turns out a lot happened. It did. There was a lot of information for Sabrina to go through and fact check and parse together. For any of our new listeners, just know our episodes are not normally this long. But we thought since it was a 250th episode milestone, we would celebrate by digging deep into this one topic. We also have Dinosaur of the Day Hesper Ornus. It is featured prominently in the Bone Wars, so it all ties together. And on top of that, there's also a fun fact, which is Bone Wars related. <laughs> so it's very much a Bone Wars episode. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons who help us keep this podcast running, as we always do. And this week, we'd like to thank specifically Scotty, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Rhinosaurus, Morgan Eklov, Risa, Kelly, Manda, Laurasaurus, Timmy, James Pascoe, Gabe, Courtney, and TRX Dinosaurs. Yes, thank you again so much for all of your support. And we're so happy and excited to be celebrating our 250th episode with you all. And if you want to join this growing community of amazing dinosaur enthusiasts, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino, where we offer a whole bunch of different rewards. And now onto our epic section about the Bone Wars. <laughs> there are a lot of books and articles that we read to put this episode together. So I'm just going to mention a few now. We'll also have links on our website in the show notes. And by we, Sabrina means that she did because I had nothing to do with any of this. <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, you heard whenever I would read some crazy tidbit, I'd be like, hey, did you know about this? Yeah. Yeah. She reads way faster than me, which is good because she got through at least six books. Yes, six books and a bunch of articles. So the books included The Bone Hunter's Revenge by David Raines Wallace, The Dinosaur Hunters by Deborah Cadbury, The Gilded Dinosaur by Mark Jaff, The Life of a Fossil Hunter by Charles Sternberg, who was part of the Bone Wars. 
pretty cool. The Bone Hunters by Earl Lanham and Bone Sharps, Cowboys, and Thunder Lizards by Jim Ottaviani. And that's a graphic novel. I was going to say that has the best title. <laughs> that one was cool. And the amount of information they packed into that graphic novel is pretty amazing. There are also two really good fiction books out there, which I'd read beforehand, but I thought it'd be worth mentioning if you want to read even more about the Bone Wars, but in a more storytelling, historical fiction kind of way. I'd read these both before we started delving into the research, and I'd highly recommend. So the first one is Every Hidden Thing by Kenneth Opal, and the second one is Dragon Teeth by Michael Crichton. There were also a whole bunch of articles online with information, things from museums like the Houston Museum, also Yale Daily News. There are a few TV shows that have dedicated episodes to the <laughs> Bone Wars and a whole bunch of other places. So we will be linking those all too if you want to know even more. And because of that, because there are so many different sources, a lot of them were contradictory, <laughs> which is partly why Sabrina sourced so many different books, because she would read one book and she would say like, oh, this one's really positive about everything that Cope did and talks about Marsh as like this scoundrel. And then she'd read another book that was exact opposite. So the truth is definitely somewhere in the middle and you would find other accounts that sort of seemed more middle of the road and you could eventually piece together a more likely story. Right. Plus some have more details than others. I wouldn't say they were contradictory, but there's definitely a lot of overlap and they all had their own points of view. Gotcha. Yeah. Just contradictory about their personality types, maybe, but less about the actual facts of what happened. Yeah. And you can imagine, too, a lot of these books were written decades after both of these men died. So <laughs> you have to kind of piece it together based on letters they wrote. Yeah. And the older it is, maybe the better. But then they might have known him personally, so that could slant it too. Right. So really just more sources, the better. <laughs> so now getting into it, <laughs> the Bone Wars are infamous. And it is that period of time between the 1870s to the 1890s when two paleontologists, Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope, had a rivalry that eventually ruined them, but it also made dinosaurs mainstream. So both of these men hunted for fossils in the wild west of the United States with the help of the new railroads and the burgeoning scientific community in America. They also had to deal with politics, tensions between the Sioux and other tribes, and of course each other. Before the Bone Wars, dinosaurs were not that popular. Only nine species of dinosaurs had been named, and it was mostly based on isolated teeth and skeletal fragments that had been found. But after Marsh and Cope and their rush to name new species, even going so far as to bribe, steal, and destroy bones to prevent each other from winning, there's rumors that they spied on each other, and one rumor that Marsh stole a railway car bones, but there's no evidence that that actually <laughs> happened. Allegedly. Yes. But these two named 144 species, only 32 of which are considered valid today, and this is all according to 538. Marsh and Cope are often depicted in different ways. Marsh is often seen as this loner, very suspicious of people, and he worked slowly and methodically. He was bald and he had a large beard. Cope, on the other hand, was seen as passionate and eccentric, and he was quick to describe fossils. He also liked women, but was devoted to his family. And he had a full head of hair and a mustache. But both of them had money, and they were very driven. Marsh got his money from his uncle George Peabody, who owned a large mercantile company, 
and was a philanthropist and bachelor with an interest in education, and Cope got his money from his father, though he did have an allowance for most of his life, so sometimes he's depicted as the poor one in the Bone Wars. (laughs) But only the poor amongst the elite, not the poor amongst like an average person in the 1800s. Yes, both of these men spent hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of the Bone Wars, and this is in the 1800s. It makes sense too, because back then, the only way to really pursue something like this was like a leisure sort of activity. You had to have the means to not be trying to make money all the time, and therefore you could sort of research dinosaurs if that's what you wanted to do. Yes. Well, they also both had two different pathways to get there, but we'll get into that. Cope was a little less formal in the way you described Garrett. Marsh was more formally educated. But there was one more paleontologist who was part of the Bone Wars, and he's often not mentioned, and that's Joseph Lady. Lady was the first vertebrate paleontologist in the U.S., and he was older than both Marsh and Cope. And he'd found evidence of horses, lions, rhinos, and other large mammals in the West. And in 1856, he discovered dinosaurs in America. He's the one who formally described Hadrosaurus foci in 1858. However, unlike Marsh and Cope, Lady didn't have money to pursue fossil hunting, and he also didn't like getting entangled in the rivalry. So eventually he quit paleontology and people kind of forgot about him. Cope learned a lot from Lady. He was Lady was kind of his mentor, but he still ended up referring to him as poor old Lady. And I don't think it was endearing. I wonder if that was a pun on Lady versus Lady. Could be. There were a few <laughs> puns. OC Marsh. Women used to refer to him as O, like O H C Marsh. <laughs> They didn't, this is women who didn't really like him and he didn't like that nickname. That's funny. Anyway, starting at the beginning, Othniel Charles Marsh was born October 29th, 1831 in Lockport, New York. His mother, Mary, died when he was three years old and he had an older sister, Mary, who was five at the time. His father, Caleb, remarried quickly and Marsh had a lot of half-brothers and half-sisters. Caleb started a shoe factory that failed in 1837, and so he had a lot of debts. Marsh was the oldest son, and his father expected him to work on the farm, and this caused a lot of tension between Marsh and his father. Marsh's stepmother was not very sympathetic to this. So as a farmer, Marsh probably only went to school during winter sessions, and he quit when he was 16. He kept a few journals, but they were all very factual, so we don't know too much about how he was feeling about things. When he was young, he was influenced by Colonel Ezekiel Jewett, a fossil collector. When he was 21 years old, he lived near his sister Mary and her husband while he tried to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. At that point, he had about $1,200 from a cash settlement from a property that his mother had owned, and he decided to attend Phillips Academy. During his first year, he was not a good student. He still planned to work in the mechanical trade. And he didn't really take classes seriously. But the summer after his first year, his outlook changed, possibly due to his sister Mary's death. She died from a miscarriage. He may have also been influenced by his aunt Judith Russell, his mother's sister. So he started collecting minerals and he became very focused at school. His uncle, his mother's brother, George Peabody, was also giving him some money for his education. In 1856, Marsh graduated and he wrote a thank you letter to Uncle George. And he said that he would have written sooner, but he thought that his actions, graduating from school, were better. (laughs) And then he asked for money so he could attend Yale. (laughs) 
<laughs> it worked out well for him. It seems like the only reason he wrote was to ask for money. Well, <laughs> he asked for a lot of money from his uncle over the years. This was potentially a big ask, not just because of the money, but also because George and many of the other Peabody's had gone to Harvard instead of Yale. Oh. <laughs> so Uncle George promised to pay for Marsh's expenses and give him $100 a year for pocket money. And since George was mostly living in Europe, his Aunt Judith acted as their go-between. Marsh did really well at Yale, and he joined the rowing team. He was also a member of Phi Beta Kappa, but he spent a lot. He spent $1,000 a year. <laughs> this is sort of a trend. A hundred, we'll a thousand, you know. Yeah. What's a zero here or there? <laughs> so his Aunt Judith often scolded him for spending so much and for sending her the bills late. This is a habit he never grew out of. <laughs> Didn't even send the bills that time. Yeah, she just wasn't a priority for him. So sometimes Marsh asked his father for even more money, saying that, yeah, he could get the money from Uncle George, but then he'd risk losing 10 times that amount in the future. <laughs> Marsh, while at Yale, lived in four rooms on the third floor of a private home, and he filled his rooms and the attic with minerals and fossils, and his collection was so heavy that the owner of the house had to prop up the floors. Wow. And Marsh had always had a suspicious nature, and even at a young age, he was suspicious, and he didn't let anyone see his collection, except for the landlady's daughter when she was a child. And he once showed her his collection of real and fool's gold, and then he told her that he didn't trust anyone else to see it. Marsh's landlady said that Marsh was very odd, and, quote, for most people, it was like running against a pitchfork to get acquainted with him. <laughs> because Marsh was older than his classmates, they called him Daddy or Captain. While at Yale, Marsh decided that he wanted to be a professor of natural science. And in the summer of 1860, he wrote to Uncle George, who agreed to give him money. Marsh did two years of graduate school at Yale's New Sheffield School of Science. Meanwhile, the Civil War broke out, and Marsh was offered a commission as a major in a Connecticut regiment, but he declined because he had poor eyesight. In the summer of 1861, Marsh went to Nova Scotia and wrote his first scientific paper about a vertebrate fossil. He was about 30 years old. He thought at the time it was a halibut's backbone. Marsh's geology professor, James Dwight Dana, told him to send the fossil to Louis Agassi, a professor at Harvard and the world's fossil fish expert at the time. Agassi thought that it had characteristics of fish and amphibians. Marsh disagreed, and he wrote a quick description, and he named the fossil Eosaurus acadianus, and he spent the next six months studying this fossil and found that it was actually from a 12-foot-long amphibian. Marsh did all of that work to correct Agassi, and it's one of the early examples of his tenaciousness and competitiveness and basically not liking to be told he's wrong. In 1863, Marsh went to the University of Berlin. That's where he first met Cope instead of joining the war. However, as a side note, he encouraged his cousin James to join the war, and that infuriated his Aunt Judith. In 1866, Marsh became chair of paleontology at Yale, thanks to Uncle George and his money. He basically successfully convinced his uncle to donate money to Yale for a Peabody Museum. And Yale didn't have any money to pay Marsh a salary, so Marsh agreed to be unpaid. And that worked out well for him because then he was able to do research and field work without teaching. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that, but that is a huge advantage. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing he had Uncle George's money. <laughs> That's kind of, that could be the subtitle of his life. <laughs> <laughs> 
1869, Marsh gained some notoriety by debunking the Cardiff giant. This is some backstory. On October 16th of 1869 in Cardiff, New York, two workmen were digging a well on William Newell's farm, and they found a large gray statue that was about 10 feet long. Newell set up a tent and charged 10 cents for people to take a look at it. A lot of people wondered if this was a petrified man or a statue of some ancient Indian tribe or a carving from the first Jesuit missionaries in America or proof that the Phoenicians had reached North America even centuries before Leif Erikson and the Vikings. So a lot of people came and then he upped the price to 50 cents a visit. Then a Syracuse business bought the giant for $30,000 and moved it to Syracuse via train. They sold 4,000 tickets in one day. P.T. Barnum then offered to pay $60,000 for a three-month lease, but he was denied, so he hired a local sculptor to make a plaster copy. (laughs) (laughs) So Dr. John Boynton, a geologist, thought that the statue was at least 300 years old. James Hall, a director of the New York State Geological Survey, said that the giant was remarkable and deserved the attention of archaeologists. Henry Ward, the professor of natural sciences at Rochester University, agreed with Hall. So at this time, science was a very new field in the U.S., and most scientists in the U.S. were medical doctors. This is different from scientists in Europe. They didn't really have any particular training required, but scientists did want to be more respected and to be taken more seriously. Joseph Henry toured European universities and laboratories, and he wrote that scientists in America should make science more respected at home. But at the time, Americans saw science as impractical, or as Henry James said, an exercise of, quote, leisure and opportunity. (laughs) Because it kind of was. Right. And after the Civil War, people wanted to focus on building their fortunes in the nation instead. There was land opening up in the West. There were a lot of materials, also a lot of immigrants coming in. And at the same time, a lot of fraud was happening like the Cardiff giant. So when Marsh examined this giant, he said that after a few minutes, he confirmed, quote, that it is a very recent origin and a most decided (laughs) humbug. (laughs) A most decided humbug. Yes. (laughs) So he found the gypsum block had probably been water-worn before the statue was carved and the tool marks were still visible in some spots. And since gypsum is soluble in about 400 parts water, it wouldn't take long for those surfaces to get rougher and not have traces of tool marks. Mm. But these tool marks were pretty perfect. So the giant must have been buried recently before being discovered. And it turns out that Farmer Newell's cousin, George Hall, had come up with the idea. The gypsum block had come from Iowa. It was cut in the form of a giant in Chicago and then aged with ink and sulfuric acid and buried in Cardiff a few days before discovery. Hmm. So Marsh published a letter about this in the Buffalo Courier November 29th, and then the New York Herald on December 1st, and then it was across wires to the nation. So James Hall and John Boynton then said, well, they knew all along that this was a hoax. Hmm. And Barnum ended up putting his giant on display anyway December 12th and called it the true Goliath, and people still paid to see it. <laughs> Barnum was good at that kind of thing. He was. Barnum also worked closely with scientists when he started his circus full of animals. They got the skeletons after the animals died. Oh, that's interesting. Marsh stayed a bachelor his whole life, and he tried a few times to court women, but they found him, quote, overly demonstrative. So he ended up giving up. And as I mentioned before, women sometimes referred to him as O.C. Marsh, a play on O.C., Othniel Charles Marsh, and he didn't like that. 
Did he used to start a lot of sentences with OC or something? No, he used to start a lot of sentences with what, what? <laughs> really? Yeah, but I'll get to that later. It gave him a nickname. <laughs> I don't know if that's how he said it, but those two words, yes. <laughs> that's wonderful. So on to Cope. Edward Drinker Cope was born on July 28th of 1840. So he's nine years younger than Marsh. And he was born in Fairfield near Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. He was a child prodigy and he wrote his first paper in 1859 when he was 19 years old. He came from a family of Quakers and he was the oldest of four. He had two sisters and one half-brother. His family was wealthy. They had money from Cope Brothers Packet Ships, which was one of the largest merchant shipping companies in Philadelphia. His father, Alfred, was a retired farmer with a large house on an eight-acre estate, and his mother, Hannah, died when he was three, so same as Marsh, and his Aunt Jane cared for Cope and his sisters until Alfred married again in 1851. Alfred was devout and rigid and thought that his son Cope was a wicked boy, and Cope had a conflicted relationship with his father, as you can imagine, and this is seen through their many letters. Cope was a copious writer. Hmm. But Cope's stepmother, Rebecca Biddle, was very sympathetic to him. So overall, Cope was happy as a child and very curious. He went to Quaker day and boarding schools. Alfred, his father, was an, quote, enthusiastic Jeffersonian, which meant he tried to mold his son into an educated farmer like President Jefferson. Cope worked on relatives' farms every summer to learn agriculture, and he learned to love nature from farming. When Cope was 14, his father put him to work on their farm until he was 20 years old. Then in 1860, when he was 20, Cope wrote to his father asking for permission to see a lecture about anatomy by Joseph Lady, a zoologist and paleontologist at the University of Pennsylvania. Cope said that it would be valuable and, quote, the knowledge of human and comparative anatomy would be of immense service to one desiring a knowledge of the proper manner of treating stock. Which is a bit of a stretch, but a smart move. <laughs> so his father let him go, and after that, Cope stopped being a farmer. <laughs> His father gave him a farm, though, called McShag's Pinnacle, when he was 21, but Cope ended up renting it out and used the income for his scientific endeavors, and he ended up visiting the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. and studying at the Philadelphia Academy. That's poor Cope. All he had was a farm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Gifted to him when he turned 21. <laughs> so Cope was a gentleman scholar, like he mentioned earlier. In 1861, he became a member of the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences. He was ambivalent about joining the Civil War. He was probably a pacifist since he was a Quaker, but he did think about becoming a hospital orderly or teaching emancipated slaves in the South. In 1863, Cope's father sent him to Europe, partly to keep him from being enlisted or drafted into the Union Army, and partly because Cope was in a relationship that his father didn't approve of. There's not too much known about this love affair, but there's a good chance she wasn't a Quaker. Cope sent letters to his family while in Europe, and he had some mental health issues. This is possibly due to a broken heart. But Henry Fairfield Osborne, who became Cope's friend later in life, said that he thought the issues may have stemmed from this widening gulf between religion and science of the day. Cope was a scientist, but he was also very religious. While in Europe, Cope visited the British Museum and many other European museums. He studied their collections, and he met a lot of scientists. So this was his education compared to Marsh's more formal education. Cope returned, 
1864 became a professor of zoology at Haverford College in Pennsylvania, thanks to his family. His grandfather, Thomas Pimcope, had been one of the founders of Haverford, and his cousin, Charles Yarnell, was a founder and officer of the school. So he might as well be a professor there. Yes. Without any formal education. <laughs> yes. Although he was still very smart. It was a simpler time. Mm -hmm. A worse time. <laughs> but a simpler time. <laughs> so in 1864, Cope married a distant cousin, Annie Pym, who was a Quaker. And his father approved of this woman, apparently. Yes. And then in 1865, his daughter Julia was born. In 1866, Cope got a letter from the superintendent of the West Jersey Marl Company about some giant bones from Haddonfield, New Jersey, where Hadrosaurus was found. And Cope named it Lalaps, after the goddess Diana's hunting dog that turned to stone while in mid-leap. At Haverford, Cope had his students collect insects to study them, and he also took chemistry classes. After about a year or two, though, he started to dislike his job. He disagreed with the faculty and administration, and he resigned before finishing his third year. He wrote to his father, quote, flummery there is and will be at Haverford. Flummery? Yes. It's not something you want to be around, apparently. Yes, it sounds like an 1800s word. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so Cope managed the McShag farm, and then he worked on his research, and then he moved his family to Haddonfield to be closer to the fossils. He had enough money to live on, but he couldn't finance any expeditions for scientific research. So he soon sold his farm so he could become a full-time scientist. And he bought his Haddonfield home for $12,000 and then invested the rest of the money. In 1870, he published his first paper on fossil vertebrates. Cope was very passionate about science. He even got into fistfights, and he liked controversy and arguing, and he offended many people. But he apparently, quote, fraternized cordially after a battle, and he had a good sense of humor about it. E.C. Case, whose father was a contemporary of Cope's, said that Cope, quote, hated opponents he could not respect and gave them heavy blows how and when he could. One friend of both Cope and Lady said, quote, whereas Lady was essentially a man of peace, Cope was what might be called a militant paleontologist. <laughs> whereas Lady's motto was peace at any price, Cope's was war at whatever cost. A militant paleontologist. I don't think this is a category that really spread much beyond Cope. No. <laughs> well, we'll get into it, but I think it's because they get very pedantic and passive aggressive about it. That's true. Not that militant, yeah. just militant for a paleontologist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in the beginning, Marsh and Cope were pretty friendly with each other. They met in Berlin in Germany around 1863, 1864. And when they met, Marsh had two degrees. He had published two papers. Cope didn't have any degrees, but he had published 37 scientific papers already. They spent a few days together. Then they exchanged manuscripts, fossils, images, and corresponded with each other. In 1867, Cope named one of his amphibian fossils after Marsh, Tionius Marshi. And then in 1868, Marsh named a new serpent from New Jersey after Cope, Mosasaurus copianus. Apparently, though, Cope thought that Marsh was on his turf in New Jersey, so he referred to that Mosasaurus as, quote, the one that got away. <laughs> in the summer of 1869, Marsh made a visit to Philadelphia, which was then the nation's science capital, to see Lady's Hadrosaurus on display and Cope's Elasmosaurus at the Academy of Natural Sciences. Cope had invited him. Hadrosaurus was mounted by Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, 
who was the world's first paleo artist. You might know that name because he did the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, and then he made it to the U.S. to make a similar dinosaur garden for Central Park in New York. When he heard of Hadrosaurus, he offered to mount it at no charge, and he finished it in 1868. However, Hawkins never finished the Central Park dinosaurs because the project ended up shifting to Tammany Hall in 1871, and boss William Tweed was offended by Hawkins and had his gang smash the Hadrosaurus model and other models and then dump them into a lake. Yeah, that's a huge bummer. It is. New York in the eighteen late 1800s is not the place to be. There were a lot of places not to be in the <laughs> late 1800s. <laughs> True. <laughs> but back to Cope and Marsh. Cope had named... Elasmosaurus platyurus in March as an initial report based on several fragments, but there were more than 100 bones that had been wrapped in old newspaper and then tied in burlap sacks and boxed in wooden crates and sent to the academy by Dr. Theophilus Turner, the army surgeon at Fort Wallace in western Kansas, and these bones were in clay, so it was very hard to piece together. Cope ended up using George Cuvier's technique of comparative anatomy, which Joseph Lady also used, and he reconstructed Elasmosaurus. It was 35 feet long, and it had large fins, and this angular head with sharp teeth and a flexible neck. The neck was so strange that Cope made a new order called Streptosauria, which means twisted reptiles. And he wrote a major paper about it with lithographic plates, and he paid for this expense himself and he did it for the transactions of the American Philosophical Society. He was very proud of it, and he showed Marsh the Elasmosaurus, but Marsh noticed that the head was where the tail should be. Cope had put the skull on the tail on accident. Marsh later said that he told Cope gently about this, (laughs) and he said, quote, When I informed Professor Cope of it, his wounded vanity received a shock from which it has never recovered, and he has since been my bitter enemy. I give this transaction as one sample of Professor Cope and his methods, one taste of the cheese. (laughs) One taste of the cheese. (laughs) Yes. He found some excellent quotes. Yes. Cope, on the other hand, said Marsh had been caustic, and he defended it. Turner had said when he found the bones, the skull and vertebrae were arranged this way. So Cope and Marsh argued, and then they called in Lady to arbitrate. Poor old Lady, who did not like controversy. But he took the last vertebra from the tail and put it on the skull. Cope was embarrassed, so he ended up trying to buy all the copies he could find of the American Philosophical Society to destroy them, but some of them remained. Lady and Marsh both had copies. Cope wrote a brief note to correct his restoration in the fall, but Marsh and Lady didn't think that this was enough. And at the Academy's meeting, March 8th of 1870, Lady said, quote, Professor Cope has described the skeleton in a reverse position and in that view has represented it in a restored condition. So he made it a little more public. And then that same meeting, Marsh read a paper on a bird that he'd found in Monmouth County, New Jersey, and a tooth from an extinct peccary from New Jersey's Shark River, as well as some bones from a small hadrosaurus. And this was a slight to Cope because, again, Cope considered this his turf, the New Jersey fossils. This happened because the summer before, Cope had shown Marsh the marl pits. And then Marsh ended up working with Reverend Beadle of Bridgetown, New Jersey, to hunt for fossils and send them to him instead of Cope. (laughs) Marsh collecting fossils from Haddonfield wasn't illegal, but to Cope, this felt like poaching. So now, their friendship was over. And so begins the battle for finding fossils. Yes. And fighting over them. Yes. 
They started feuding via mail. They wrote very passive-aggressive, sometimes aggressive letters to each other, and there were a lot of accusations flying around. They also started calling each other out in the American Journal of Science and doing other things. So in March 1870, the same week that Lady corrected Cope on Elasmosaurus, Cope went to the two New Jersey sites and told them that Marsh misses payments, but they didn't seem to believe him. Marsh dismissed all of this and then claimed the fossil grounds as his alone. He did have slightly more money. Yes, which was apparently a huge advantage. (laughs) So the Bone Wars in the West of the U.S., they started in the 1870s, though there were a lot of other things going on at this time. So some quick background. By 1825, there was a treaty that gave the Sioux all land from the east bank of the Mississippi to the base of the Rockies and from central Iowa up to the Dakotas, and for a while things were relatively peaceful. And then in 1868, the Sioux were given reservation land in South Dakota after their first round of defeats in the Sioux War. Around that time, more and more railways were being built. In 1850, there were less than 9,000 miles of track across the country, but by 1870, there were almost 53,000 miles and it was growing, and that made it much easier to go out west. Marsh made his first trip out west in 1868. This is one year after Colonel George Armstrong Custer's cavalry had massacred a sleeping Cheyenne village on Washita Creek, so it was very dangerous for white visitors. Marsh went with an excursion party from the American Association of Sciences Chicago Annual Meeting to Benton, Wyoming. George Peabody had died in 1869, and he left Marsh with $150,000. Marsh wanted to plan another trip out west, but then he couldn't the next year because there was possibly a war coming. By this time, Marsh had grown his reputation by debunking the myth of the Cardiff giant, and many young men wanted to go west with him. He picked 12 Yale students, and he got a letter from General William Sherman, which, quote, became an open sesame at all army posts. They traveled for six months in the West, and they had 70 soldiers to protect them from the Sioux. They had Pawnee scouts, who at first wouldn't touch the bones, thinking that they were the remains of an ancient race of giants. But then Marsh gave a comparative anatomy lesson. He compared a horse jaw to one of their ponies. And after that, the Pawnee scouts often came back to camp with fossils for the Bone Medicine Man. That was Marsh, and later Marsh became known as the Big Bone Chief. He was also known as the Heap Woe Man. And that's because, like what I said earlier, apparently he often cleared his throat and said, what, what, before speaking. (laughs) (laughs) On this first trip, Marsh found his first pterosaur finger in Smoky Hill, which had a wingspan of over 20 feet, and that was the first one of that size known in North America. The next spring, he went back and found more bones. Marsh also collected Sioux skulls for study when they came across them. After 1870, he took Yale students out west three years in a row. So in 1871, he took 10 students and a military escort with five army wagons, and they went back to the same spot where Marsh had found that pterosaur bone. And this expedition cost $15,000, which is about $245,000 today. Yeah, I was going to say when he inherited the $150,000, that's about a couple million dollars today. But if he's dropping $15,000 on an expedition, he could go through that pretty quickly. Yes. But he needed those bones. (laughs) He did. (laughs) What else are you going to do with that money? So in 1872, Marsh took four students. And in 1873, he took 13 students. They went to the Bridger Basin, the Badlands and the John Day River Basin of Oregon, tertiary rocks in Idaho, 
and the valley of the Nobred River north of the Loop Fork country as well. In 1874, Marsh assembled a party of guides and soldiers at the Red Cloud Indian Agency in Nebraska, and he went into the Big Badlands, and he found two tons of fossils. Marsh became well-known among the army men and frontiersmen of the West, and he promoted this image of himself as this brave frontier outdoorsman to the public. So one story that came out was that Marsh and his party were in the middle of a buffalo herd, and the captain of the military escort turned it into a hunt. All of the fossil hunters were spectators, and Marsh was in the ambulance, which was drawn by four mules. And he asked the driver, do you want a $5 bill? And the driver said, mighty bad. And Marsh said, well, put them alongside the buffalo so that he could get a fair shot. So he shot a buffalo. Then the mules were afraid, and everything was rocking. And Marsh offered the driver another five, and they went for more buffalo, and then he shot another buffalo. Then he gave the driver one more five and shot down the leader of the buffalo, and the driver yelled, look out, he's going for you. Marsh wrote, quote, the bull sprang to his feet and with head down and eyes and nostrils flaming made a dash for me. I just had time to jump aside and before he could turn, gave him another shot, which pinned him to the ground and victory was mine. Very dramatic. Yes. And almost too remarkable to believe. Yeah, but that story was spread far and wide. <laughs> And he retold it many times throughout his life. <laughs> anyway, Marsh, as we know, was suspicious. He was also jealous and territorial over his fossils, or what he perceived to be his fossils, even of sites that other people had already started excavating. And he was very protective of the Bridger Basin in Wyoming, which actually the people there had been sending bones to Lady for years. <laughs> So Judge Carter wrote to Lady about Marsh, quote, I noticed a very marked spirit of his, shall I say, jealousy, and confess a feeling of disappointment that I found it so. <laughs> After leaving Wyoming, Marsh and his crew went west to the John Day River in Oregon, where they met with Thomas Condon, a pioneer minister and geologist. Condon lent Marsh some of his specimens, or at least he thought he was only lending them. And then six years later, he wrote to Marsh, quote, the time is more than up. He was asking for his fossils back. 19 years later, he was still asking for the fossils from Marsh. He said, quote, <laughs> I need them too. But Marsh had assumed since he had paid Condor for his services that now he owned the specimens. Marsh eventually started hiring other people to hunt fossils for him. And after a while, a lot of his assistants ended up not liking him. So one was Samuel Williston from Kansas, who joined one of Marsh's hired field parties in 1875. Williston ended up getting a PhD from Yale with a thesis on living insects because Marsh didn't allow him to work on fossils, and then he later became an authority on fossil reptiles. In 1897, in a report of the Kansas Geological Survey, Williston wrote that Marsh had made it seem that he was this extensive fossil collector, but, quote, the actual fact is that since 1875, when my personal relations with Professor Marsh began, he himself did no field work his knowledge of the formations being derived from a few transient and hasty visits to the different fields where his collectors were at work. His reference to the personal dangers encountered by hostile Indians is amusing in the extreme to all those who know the facts. <laughs> I think I can say without fear of dispute by those who know the facts that Professor Marsh never ran any greater danger from Indians than when he entertained Red Cloud at his home in New Haven. And Red Cloud was a Lakota Indian chief. I'll get into more of that later, but they had a friendship. So I'm guessing this guy doesn't believe the buffalo story. Probably not. <laughs> so 
Once Cope heard about Marsh's expeditions out west to Smoky Hill, he decided he had to go out west, so he went to Kansas in 1871. He didn't have as much money as Marsh, so he didn't have the backing or the security with the army, but he did find a few bones in Kansas. He also found pterosaurs, like Marsh had earlier, but Cope's was bigger. (laughs) And he had smaller crews than Marsh. He had to be more self-reliant. He ended up hiring a wagon and crew almost everywhere he went, and it was difficult, but overall successful. He did have a small military escort at one point who also doubled as bone hunters. They carried revolvers, but Cope said that he hated the sight of revolvers, so he didn't carry one while he was out west. Cope had really vivid descriptions of the animals he excavated. In 1872, he wrote of some pterosaur bones, quote, At nightfall, we may imagine them trooping to the shore and suspending themselves to the cliffs by the claw-bearing fingers of their wing limbs. Hmm. So in... 1872, Cope was chief paleontologist of the U.S. Geological and Geographical Survey of the Territories. There were a few surveys going on at this time. The one Cope worked for was run by Ferdinand Hayden. In 1870, Hayden, who started in medicine, then went to geology at the University of Pennsylvania, was named director of the Geological Survey of Nebraska in 1869, and he was working on turning it into the U.S. Geological and Geographic Survey. Hayden put together a group of scientists for his survey so that they could make him an important figure in American science politics by finding all this great stuff. Hayden originally wanted to work with Lady, but Lady didn't want to compete with other scientists. Hayden didn't end up paying Cope, but Cope could claim to be on official government business and then get army supplies from posts out west. Cope's findings would also be published in the survey's annual report. This survey was only published once a year, so Cope also rushed to publish findings with the American Philosophical Society, even telegraphing them sometimes, which paleontologist Bob Bakker, who wrote The Dinosaur Heresies, has called, quote, taxonomic carpet bombing. <laughs> Cope went to Fort Bridger, which Marsh considered to be his territory, and also, again, the area where Lady had been collecting. And Hayden wrote Lady in a letter, quote, I asked him to not go into that field, that you were going there. He laughed at the idea of being restricted to any locality and said he intended to go whether I aided him or not. I was anxious to secure the cooperation of such a worker as an honor to my corpse. I could not be responsible for the field he selected in, inasmuch as I pay him no salary and a portion of his expenses. You will see, therefore, that while it is not a pleasant thing to work in competition with others, it seems almost a necessity you can sympathize. It's interesting that both of them had their own mechanism for getting basically anywhere they wanted by the geological survey and then the letter from his uncle. Yeah, they're very resourceful and they also weren't afraid to steamroll their way. Yeah. (laughs) So at Fort Bridger, there were no supplies or wagons or horses. Hayden had actually taken most of them to Yellowstone. So Cope eventually bought his own wagon and hired a team with his own money. He went out to Bridger Basin and he found 25 or 30 species in a few days. Ten of them were new. And nearby at Black Buttes, he found and named Agathamus. Cope spent a lot of money, about $2,000 in six months, and that was two years worth of his salary as a professor. So as we established, unlike Cope and Marsh, Joseph Lady didn't have much money. His father was a hatter, and Lady spent his first years in research working extra hours for the city coroner. He didn't have a budget, and he didn't want to hire people to further his expeditions, and he also didn't want to get competitive about it. Hayden had been sending his specimens from Big Sandy Creek, Wyoming to Lady, 
And then Marsh started writing to Hayden, asking Hayden to let Marsh describe his finds. Oh, jeez. Hayden liked Lady, so he kept writing to Lady to hurry up and describe his fossils before Marsh came back. And he saw Marsh as, quote, raging ambitious. <laughs> this episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. In 1867, Lady published Cretaceous Reptiles of the United States, which was the most detailed work to date on American fossils of that period. But it got a bad review in England, signed only by H., which may have been Thomas Huxley. It said, quote, Its best praise is that it contains no quackery. Its worst condemnation is that it contains no science. Jeez. Yes. And the reason people think that this was Huxley is because Lady at the time was more interested in describing bones, whereas Huxley was more interested in the story that they told. He was trying to prove evolution. So it's more of like a systematic paleontology sort of thing, describing what these new animals are, not why they're significant. Yes. That's still science. Yeah, it's just different. Not Huxley's type of science. <laughs> Well, we'll get more into Huxley later. He plays a role as well. So Marsh, Cope, and even Lady did end up getting a bit competitive. On his expeditions, Marsh had spread the word about Cope, so Cope was not very welcome at army posts. Marsh had employed local bone hunters who were also not friendly to Cope, and Cope had fewer men working for him. Even Lady ended up urging James Carter, who had invited him out west, to hide any fossils he found so that Marsh and Cope wouldn't know about them. 
At one site in Wasatch Basin, there was an incident where Cope watched Marsh's men excavating. And when they left, Cope found pieces of a skull and some loose teeth, and he named a new species based on it. But it turns out that they were all fake and planted there, and it took 20 years to correct that error. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's some pretty good counter-espionage. Yes, <laughs> it's true. Eventually, Lady stopped doing paleontology. He said that Marsh and Cope outspent him, and he wrote to a British colleague, quote, Formerly, every fossil bone found in the States came to me, for nobody else cared to study such things. But now Professors Marsh and Cope, with long purses, offer money for what used to come to me for nothing, and in that respect, I cannot compete with them. Privately, Lady also said he couldn't handle the squabbling. So he ended up studying living microorganisms. After he died in 1891, Osborne said that he couldn't find one mention of Lady in either Marsh or Cope's works, except in a brief tribute by Marsh in an early work. So they were not good at sharing the credit. Seriously. Now, the Bone Wars are infamous partly because of all of the confusion that came out of it. So there's a scientific naming convention that the first name in the literature is the one that stays. And for a long time, this wasn't a problem until the Bone Wars. <laughs> so at Bridger Basin, there were too many discoveries by too many people at once. There were no protocols. There were no uniform publication standards. And there were no final arbiters. To say nothing of something like peer review where someone might actually fact check you. Yes. <laughs> so we've got a couple examples here. One, there was a small lemur skull that was two or three inches long that got seven names from Marsh, Cope, and Lady. <laughs> one of the names by Lady, Notharctus, was the oldest, and that's the one that ended up sticking. But Cope argued that his name should be used because they were published on the same date as one of Marsh's names, but Cope's description was longer than Marsh's. Hmm. Again, leaving Lady out. Another example is the mammal Uintatherium, which was named by Lady and published on August 1st, 1872. Cope published on August 19th that this animal was Loxolophodon, but he tried to get the name published earlier via telegraph, but telegraph is confusing and it got misspelled as Lephalodon. <laughs> Cope did correct it, but not until August 22nd. It turns out, though, that Cope had already used that name, so then he used the new name, Eobacillus. Around the same time, Marsh published on the same animal the names Dinoceros and Tinoceros. He thought that Cope's Eobacillus was the same, but it turns out Cope's animal was different and more recent, a bit younger. But Marsh's Dinoceros and Tinoceros were the same as Lady's Uintatherium. Cope and Marsh battled over Uintatherium. They called each other out on mistakes, and Marsh implied that Cope was a cheat. And then Marsh succeeded in getting the Philosophical Society to stop publishing Cope's papers about Uintatherium, partly because the society was run by gentlemen in their spare time, so sometimes they published things later because they just didn't have time. This was a hobby for them. Cope also asked for help from his father. He needed money. He said he'd been charged $290 by the society for drawing and printing 1,000 copies of his Loxolophodon. And he wrote, quote, Marsh has always been extraordinarily jealous, and it would seem to have at last developed into insanity. This is the only way in which I can counteract the damage Marsh is trying to do to me. Hayden will do nothing. He is a coward. Marsh has now the whole editions of the American Journal of Science and Arts and American Naturalist, probably ten times that of the Philosophical Society proceedings. If thee can help me out of this scrape, I will always be mindful of it. 
Cope also got a letter of support from Pendleton King, professor of natural history at the University of Louisiana, and affidavits from the printers who set his papers in pamphlet form. Marsh sometimes did the same, but for this particular case, he said that an unschooled printer typesetting a pamphlet was not the same as a scientific body getting a research paper. Quote, printing is not publication. Cope also wrote to Hayden for more money. He said, quote, This attack is made on your survey as well as on me. Marsh told me that your collaborators are a bad lot, and I suppose he wants to make me appear like the rest. Hayden wrote to Lady in late April, quote, I am afraid Cope is going to humbug me. He may come out all right, but there is some mischief brewing. I ought to have some hold on him. You know what a mule head he is. <laughs> some good mule language, head. yeah. <laughs> Harvard professor Louis Agassi was on Marsh's side, which is a little surprising considering what happened earlier with the amphibian. But anyway, he was building the Museum of Comparative Zoology in Cambridge. He didn't have any big-name vertebrate paleontologists, and he wanted some specimens from the West. So he basically took Marsh's side to try and get Marsh to go fossil hunting for him. But Marsh's main goal was to build up the Peabody Museum. Spencer Bard from the Smithsonian, Agassi, and Marsh, they all wanted to build institutions and basically not have science be a hobby anymore in America. In the May issue of The Naturalist, Cope responded to Marsh's charges and said he'd be, quote, glad to bury them in oblivion. He wrote, quote, I might now proceed to characterize the effrontery of such proceedings in fitting terms, but forbear, believing that with a little change of scene, the author of them will be glad to bury them in oblivion as is the writer of this notice. Marsh wrote to many scientists trying to get confirmation of Cope's dates of publication, but he couldn't get any answers. So he wrote a rebuttal to Cope's rebuttal, but the editors of The Naturalist had enough, and they ran this notice in their June edition. Quote, We regret that Professors Marsh and Cope have considered it necessary to carry their controversy to the extent that they have, Wishing to maintain the perfect independence of the naturalist in all matters involving scientific criticism, we have allowed both parties to have their full say, but feeling that now the controversy between the authors in question has come to be a personal one, and that the naturalist is not called upon to devote further space to its consideration, the continuance of the subject will be allowed only in the form of an appendix at the expense of the author. So, of course, Marsh paid for a nine-page appendix in that issue and attacked Cope again. <laughs> And then Cope paid for an appendix for a rebuttal in the July issue of The Naturalist. Lady, on the other hand, kept quiet. He told Hayden he'd take another trip out west. Quote, However, as Marsh and Cope are now working actively at the Bridger Territory to avoid the excitement of competition, I shall go no further with it. He also wrote to Hayden, quote, In my absence, Marsh has described many new species in genera, and I am told that Professor Cope has descriptions of new species constantly being published to which I have no access. You will perceive how many errors may be made. We have no doubt in some cases described the same things under different names and thus produced some confusion, which can only be corrected in the future. End quote. It's very insightful. And it was. And it was. But it's taken a long time to sort out. <laughs> some quicker than others. Yeah. Despite Lady's best efforts to stay out of it, Marsh dragged him in, and he complained that the dates in one of Lady's papers showed that Cope was right, so he asked Lady to put question marks after those dates. But that would have endorsed Marsh, so Lady suggested instead to note that the dates were disputed by Marsh. In the end, though, Lady won that battle with Uintotherium. Lady and Marsh had gotten specimens from the same lower Eocene beds, 
Cope had gotten his specimen from the geologically younger Wasatch Basin, the upper Eocene, which was 8 to 10 million years younger. So Cope's specimen was more developed and large, and that name stuck, Eobacillus. Marsh's name, Dinoceros, was late, so it became a junior synonym to Uintotherium. However, Marsh had more than 200 individuals, so he wrote a comprehensive monograph in 1884, Dinocerata, that was 230 pages and had 56 lithographs and 200 woodcuts. Dinocerata is used in some modern classifications as a group name for Uintotherus, but Dinocerus is never used for Uintotherium. It's considered to be a synonym. Marsh eventually got tired of working with students and ended up working with a mix of thugs and professors. Thugs like <laughs> Sam Smith and professors like Benjamin Mudge. He expected these people to only collect for him and conceal their finds from any rival collectors. This caused resentment, especially since Marsh often forgot to pay them. He was very absent-minded about that. Cope was right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So in 1871, Marsh described Hesperornis. Professor Benjamin Mudge, or somebody, accidentally sent Cope some of Marsh's bones, and on January 20th of 1873, Cope sent Marsh a letter with the bones, calling the toothed birds simply delightful. But he addressed the envelope to O.C. Marsh to mock him, that nickname that he hated. Not O.C. but O and then C.S.E.E. Marsh wrote back, he said, quote, I am glad you fully appreciated my bird with teeth, and I hope soon to send you some photographs of it. Your paper on the Proboscideans came the 20th, with postmark 18th of January, although bearing the date 16th. Why don't you send your papers more promptly, as I invariably do? <laughs> I am willing to accept as publication even an uncorrected proof, as we agreed. And Lady promised to do the same. The Kansas fossil you sent me came all right. Where are the rest, and how about those from Wyoming? The information I received on this subject made me very angry, and had it come at the time I was so mad with you getting away Smith, to whom I had given valuable notes about localities, etc., I should have gone for you, not with pistols or fists, but in print. I came very near publishing this with some of your other transgressions, including a certificate from Mr. Kin, but my better judgment prevailed. I was never so angry in my life. No, don't you get angry about all this, but pitch into me with equal frankness if I've done anything you don't like. In haste, yours truly. Cope wrote a four-page long response, and part of it said, quote, It is far more irritating to me to be charged with dishonorable acts than to lose material species, etc. All the specimens you obtained during August 1872 you owe to me. Had I chosen, they all would have been mine. I allowed your men, Chu and Smith, to accompany me, and at last, when they turned back discouraged, I discovered a new basin of fossils, showed it to them, and allowed them to camp and collect with me for a considerable time. By this, I lost several fine things, end quote. He also asked Marsh to take back all his accusations. Then Marsh responded, because these two never quit, uh, that he wanted, quote, most sincerely to be on friendly terms, and would, quote, promptly make amends, for any future slighter injustice, but not for this current case. He wrote, quote, I feel I have been deeply wronged by you in numerous instances. These wrongs I have usually borne in silence. After the Smith affair last summer, I made up my mind that forbearance was no longer a virtue. So as a quick side note, Sam Smith originally worked for Marsh, then ended up working for Cope, but pretended to keep working for Marsh and wrote Marsh letters telling him that Cope wasn't doing that well and that he was bad at fossil hunting. And then Marsh found out that Sam Smith was lying. 
A friend of Cope's, W.B. Scott, wrote that Sam Smith vanished in the late 1880s and his bones, when they were found, showed signs that he was murdered. Hmm. But I haven't found anything else about that, so I don't know if any of that's relevant to the bone wars. Different kinds of bones. There were a lot of ways to get murdered back then. True. And not a lot of ways to catch a murderer. Very true. So that February, Marsh and Cope met face-to-face in New York City at a banquet for British physicist John Tyndall. And Cope wrote to his father, quote, I meet friends from all parts of the East, among others Marsh, who stuck to me like a leech, and I hope became fully satisfied that I was not a thief. It seems persons had been writing to him and had wronged me greatly. As to dates, I said nothing. And Marsh had a habit of following people around to make sure they weren't stealing from him. So now a little more background about what's going on in the 1870s. Ulysses S. Grant had become president in 1872, and he called for a less militaristic, less exploitative Indian policy. The Easterners of the U.S., they were tired of war, so they were happy about this. But Westerners were dubious. Some other background factors. The Franco-Prussian War in 1873 led to German investors redeeming their bonds, which Jay Cook had brokered during the Civil War to finance the Union effort. After the war, Cook financed a second transcontinental railroad, the Northern Pacific. And at the same time as the war, interest rates in England rose, which put more pressure on the American market. So there was this run on bonds. And when that started, the Northern Pacific had millions of dollars in overdrafts. Then in 1873, there was a crash, and that led to 3 million people being unemployed. Farmers had to burn unsold crops. Doctors and lawyers cut their fees by half, and there were bread lines in New York and Boston. The Northern Pacific also created a lot of pressure and tension with the Sioux. While all this is happening in 1873, Lady Cope and Marsh have plans to go back out west. But of course, there's the tension with the Sioux. So Hayden didn't want to pay to send Cope. Cope still had his wagon, harness, horse, and two mules at Fort Bridger, though. So he lobbied Hayden and said it was useless to compete with Marsh without money. Hayden eventually gave him $250 for the season. So Cope went to Greeley, Colorado, and then east. And Cope and Marsh were within 100 miles of each other in Nebraska. While out there, Cope read aloud from the Bible at night. He didn't allow any swearing at the camp, and he was still very devout. And this is all the beginning of his explorations out west. Marsh hired Irvin Devendorf from Greeley, Colorado, to collect fossils in the same territory that Cope had explored. And Devendorf wrote to Marsh, quote, I have been making inquiries as regards Cope's successes. Found you were misinformed by someone. Cope said last summer that he had knowledge in Nevada, Wyoming, and the grounds where we were this fall. I discerned marks distinctly made, I presume, by Cope, so I judged he could strike certain places next spring. Those marks are now defaced by the sole of my boot, but I know where they were. <laughs> Lady met Cope in Denver, and Cope told him that he'd found a lot of fossils. But Lady complained to his friends at Fort Bridger that Cope was, quote, overzealous in science and does no scruples to take advantage of his opportunities. Cope went back to Fort Bridger in Wyoming, where he had a really bad fever with delirious dreams. He ended up giving himself a mixture of opium and belladonna, and his wife Annie helped care for him. So he went home when he was better and then returned to the field next summer. Marsh tried to stop Cope's publications in the Hayden survey. Hayden wrote back, on Department of the Interior Stationery, to make it more official, that he will make sure Cope sticks to the facts in his papers and, quote, I do not now know of a single personal allusion to you that could be offensive in the report of 1873. 
Copes, the Cretaceous of Kansas, will appear first, but as long as he does not allude to you personally in an offensive way, I can do nothing. If he claims you are species, you must reclaim them and present your evidence. Professor Cope is one of the collaborators of the survey. You are not, and have refused hmm. to become such, though requested by me to become so many times within the last three years. You call upon me to decide against Cope in a manner which Cope claims to be as much in the right as yourself and which must be settled by experts. Gill and Lady should take the matter up and investigate all the circumstance and their opinions placed on paper would forever settle the difficulty. I am sorry, of course, but the above view is the only one I could take under the circumstances. Now in this matter, you must take any course you see fit. My course is as plain as anything can be. Your disputed scientific claims must be wholly settled between yourselves, Cope and Marsh, and such experts as you can agree on. There is no haste so fast as the other publications are concerned. The whole affair is a struggle in which I wish you well, but can do nothing more than I have done. Sincerely, F.V. Hayden. Dana told Hayden in the fall of 1873, quote, Cope is a man of great learning and ability, and were he not in so burning haste, would always do splendid work. Marsh could do no service to you. I wish they would stop their race and work quietly. I've told Marsh more than once that it would do more for his reputation among zoologists to describe one species thoroughly than to be the one to name a hundred. Insufficient descriptions make an earnest zoologist curse American science. In 1874, Cope joined the Army Corps of Engineers run by Lieutenant George Wheeler, who gave him more money and paid for expenses. Nice. Yeah. He needed more money. He did. <laughs> well, he wasn't getting it from Hayden, so he went over to Wheeler's survey. But in exchange, Wheeler expected Cope to work as an expedition geologist and to make maps. Wheeler put zoologist H.C. Yarrow in charge of the survey, and he took the group to stops where there were no fossils, which annoyed Cope. Cope took the matter to General Gregg in Santa Fe and said that it was impossible to collect fossils, and General Gregg gave Cope the okay to disregard the maps and find fossils instead. So Cope and a team went to the Jemez Mountains near Santa Fe and found a lot of fossils, and then they were ordered to head to Pagosa Springs in Colorado, where Yarrow and Cope argued again. Cope said that obeying orders would kill the expedition, so he took guides on a pack animal, and he went to the San Juan Basin and found a lot of fossils, including many mammals. And then Wheeler summoned Cope to Tierra Amarilla, New Mexico. Cope was so difficult that Yarrow had quit and gone home to Washington, D.C. Also, their topographer P.R. Ainsworth had been killed when his revolver accidentally went off, so Wheeler now put Cope in charge of the entire party. But Wheeler could only afford to give Cope half of his salary. Cope wrote to his father, quote, I could not therefore send the $125 thee kindly lent me until the end of the season. So Cope was still getting an allowance from his father at this point. Although he was paying some back. Yes. It's interesting. Cope found many fossils, but he wasn't part of the Wheeler survey again after that, even though Wheeler did like him. Meanwhile, Marsh wanted to go to the Dakotas, but there were a lot of problems that started with the 1868 treaty between the U.S. government and the Sioux Nation. The treaty had given all of South Dakota west of the Missouri River to the Sioux as a, quote, permanent reservation, and that included the Black Hills. The region north of the North Platte River and the Bighorn Mountains was called unceded Indian Territory. The Sioux said that this still disputed land stretched all the way to the Yellowstone River in Wyoming. After the Civil War, white settlers felt that the Sioux were stopping progress and there was a lot of fear and hate. Some even paid bounties for scalps or fed them poisoned bread and organized hunting parties. There was a lot of pressure that came also from the railroads because they were moving across Sioux territory. 
1874, there were rumors of gold in the Black Hills, and General Custer pretended that he was doing something for science, but instead, going against the treaty, took a scientific party and an escort of a thousand troops into the Black Hills. This led to tensions and trouble, not surprisingly. On November 4th, Colonel T.H. Stanton and General Ord brought Marsh in to the Red Cloud Indian Agency. Marsh wanted to go to Black Hills to collect fossils, but the Sioux thought that he was there for gold, so at first they refused permission for him to go through their reservation to the Badlands. That reminds me a lot of Dragon Teeth, where everyone was assuming, what's in those boxes? (laughs) Right, I'm sure he was inspired by this real story. Yeah. You wouldn't go there just for bones. (laughs) Obviously going for gold. (laughs) So J.J. Seville, the Indian agent in the area, suggested that Marsh hold a feast for the chiefs in an effort to make peace. They had a banquet in a large tent. There were 50 people there, including Sitting Bull, Red Cloud, Pawnee Killer, Pretty Crow, and Young Man Afraid of His Horse. And Marsh gave a speech. He also promised Lakota Chief Red Cloud that he would pass along to Washington, D.C. complaints about their food and supplies. The pork was quote, rusty stuff. (laughs) Their coffee beans were green. The tobacco was vile and runny. The flour was dark in color and also sticky. The chiefs gave their consent for Marsh, and they made Red Cloud's son-in-law, Sword, lead the party. The next day, the Sioux seemed to change their mind, though, and not want to give permission. Marsh was tired of waiting, so a little after midnight, he took his wagons and headed for the Badlands anyway. (laughs) Jeez. They made it past everybody, and when they got there, one soldier said it looked like a great city. It was called the Badland because there were a lot of canyons, cliffs, buttes, and bluffs with little vegetation and almost no drinkable water. The weather was so cold that Marsh had to chip off icicles from his beard when he was eating dinner at night and thaw out his boots in the morning. Members of the tribes watched over Marsh and his party, And they were surprised when he really was only collecting rocks and bones. (laughs) And that's when they started calling him Big Bone Chief. Maybe that's why they decided not to mess with him for disregarding their instructions. Mm -hmm, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Then Sword and Red Cloud's brother Spider warned Marsh that the Minikanjus had sent their women and children to Black Hills and were now preparing to attack Marsh's group. Marsh decided to stay one more day to pack. (laughs) Because if they packed too quickly, the fossils would break. And if they packed at night by lantern, they would have been too easy to spot. They had two tons of fossils, and they moved out less than a day before the Minikanju war party passed through the area. And luckily for Marsh, they didn't follow him. Marsh got a lot of mammal fossils at that point. Marsh was sympathetic about the poor food rations that he saw, and so he did keep his word and passed along the complaints to D.C., even though Red Cloud didn't really believe him. He took samples of the bad food and the tobacco, and he showed them to the Commissioner for Indian Affairs. But Marsh wasn't happy with the response he got, so he spoke directly to President Grant and others, because remember, President Grant wanted to have better relations at this point. A presidential advisory board on Indian affairs called Marsh for consultation, and Marsh brought a reporter from the New York Daily Tribune, so that got a lot of publicity. Marsh got pushback from Columbus Delano, head of the Indian Bureau, who called him out in newspapers and defended the Bureau. And things got ugly, as they seem to with Marsh. (laughs) Sounds like at least this time he was fighting a good fight, trying to get better rations for people that had gotten the short end of the stick for quite a few years now. Yes, this was a 
pleasant surprise to read about. I had no idea. So these two men met at a breakfast in a Washington hotel, and Delano asked Marsh when he was, quote, going to cease attacking him. And Marsh said, quote, probably when you cease attacking me. (laughs) Delano called Marsh a liar and poltroon and other insults. Marsh took notes while Delano was speaking, and then Delano eventually left the room. Around this time, Red Cloud and other Sioux chiefs came to Washington to negotiate the sale of the Black Hills. Red Cloud, however, may have been confused by government interpreters, so he wasn't able to confirm some of the charges that Marsh had made on Red Cloud's behalf. And this led to a counterattack via newspapers on Marsh, and a committee asked Marsh to put his charges in writing. Marsh was ready, though. He wrote a 36-page pamphlet and an open letter to President Grant, and he sent that to the committee and 1,500 prominent citizens. If he's willing to openly just insult Cope in print, he's definitely willing to write about some bad food. Yes. (laughs) So by the end of the year, Grant announced Delano's resignation. The agent in charge of the Red Cloud Reservation was removed, and the commissioner for Indian Affairs resigned. Red Cloud and Marsh became friends, and Red Cloud visited Marsh in New Haven and saw his, what Marsh called, the wigwam room. It was this octagonal reception hall in his 18-room mansion in New Haven, and there was a buffalo head on the wall, a large round table with mementos from the West, too, that Marsh used to illustrate his Wild West stories when he entertained. (laughs) Marsh also took Red Cloud to the Peabody Museum, but apparently Red Cloud didn't really care about the fossils there. Supposedly, though, he smiled at a visit to the Winchester Rifle Factory. Marsh retired from fieldwork after 1874, three years before he became more interested in dinosaurs, and he only sometimes went into the field to basically check on work by his hired men. Also in 1874, Marsh was elected to the Academy of Natural Sciences, where Cope was a member, and this was by a vote of 37 to 1. Cope was the only dissenting (laughs) vote. In December 1875, Cope's father, Alfred, died at the age of 69, and Alfred left Cope with about $250,000. Cope was close with his father, but there were also tensions, and Alfred's death was both sad and liberating. Within a year, Cope stopped being a Quaker and became a Unitarian. Now, Cope had money, so he could compete with Marsh and he could hire field collectors. He tried to lure away Benjamin Mudge, he'd done that once before, but was again unsuccessful. And then Cope found Charles Sternberg. Sternberg had tried to explore western Kansas for fossils under Benjamin Mudge, who was the state geologist and a popular professor, but Benjamin Mudge didn't want him, so Sternberg turned to Cope. He said, quote, I put my soul into the letter I wrote him, for this was my last chance. Cope sent Sternberg $300 and a note that said, quote, I like the style of your letter. Enclosed draft. Go to work. Hmm. According to Sternberg, that, quote, bound me to cope for four long years and enabled me to endure immeasurable hardships and privations in the barren fossil fields. Sternberg had to compete with Marsh's men in western Kansas. He once lived on corn for three days while cutting 800 pounds of mosasaur bones from the chalk with a butcher knife so that they wouldn't jump his claim. Holy cow. He was very dedicated. He also said that he went to Buffalo Park and there was a well of water And at the well, his party and Mudge's party, which means Marsh's party, quote, used to meet in peace after our fierce rivalry in the field as collectors for our respective paleontologists, Marsh and Cope. 
Sternberg wrote, quote, I never carried my rifle with me. I left it in camp or in the wagon, for I soon decided that I could not hunt Indians and fossils at the same time, and I was there for fossils. So, as a hunter will follow the deer, through thickets and over rocks, forgetting hunger and cold and thirst in his anxiety to get a glimpse of his game, that he may add its antlers to his list of trophies, we fossil hunters, Professor Mudge's party and my own, sought our prey over miles and miles of barren chalk beds, cheerfully enduring countless discomforts. So I want to talk a little bit about Charles Sternberg. He wrote an autobiography, The Life of a Fossil Hunter, and he said that he wanted to be a fossil hunter at age 17. He wrote, quote, My father was unable to see the practical side of the work. He told me that if I had been a rich man's son, it would doubtless be an enjoyable way of passing my time. <laughs> but as I should have to earn a living, I ought to turn to some other business. Sternberg liked Cope, but he also worked for Marsh. He called them both Professor gave them a lot of respect. He ended up working for Marsh in 1884 at the Sternberg Quarry in Kansas. Sternberg had found the quarry years before, and a Mr. Overton had told him they stopped digging and tried to get him arrested. But Sternberg was safe because he was benefiting science. While working for Marsh, Sternberg ended up hiring Overton to help him dig and described him as a very careful worker. So Sternberg's style, as you can imagine, was very different from Cope and Marsh's. Yeah, making enemies into friends. Mm -hmm. In 1877, Cope told Sternberg to go to Oregon for an indefinite amount of time. He wrote, quote, You are to go secretly. Tell no one where you are going. Have your mail sent by a circuitous route so you cannot be traced. Though he still said goodbye to his family and told them where he was going, Sternberg figured he could give someone the slip if he needed to. In 1895, Sternberg worked for Cope again, but it was a really miserable winter and he didn't find much. He wrote to Cope that he wanted to give up the field at the end of his contract and go home, and then Cope wrote back promising never to send him into the field again against his own judgment. Sternberg wrote, quote, a letter which I shall always cherish, not only because it shows the very best side of Cope's character, but because it makes me feel that he realized that my life work could not be measured by money. This letter encouraged Sternberg to stay one more month, and he ended up finding a lot of fossils. He worked again for Cope in 1897 in Texas. While in the field, he heard about Cope's death on April 12th, and he wrote, quote, I had lost friends before and had known what it was to bury my own dead, even my firstborn son, but I had never sorrowed more deeply than I did now over the news that in the very prime of life, in the noonday of his glorious intellectual achievements, as he was bending all his energies to the study and description of the wonderful fauna of the Texas Permian, the greatest naturalist in America had passed away with his work undone. Death is terrible always, but it seems especially so when it strikes down men in the highest rank of intelligence who are adding every day to the world's knowledge. Wow. It's quite the compliment. You might recognize the name Sternberg. He was a famous fossil hunter, but his sons were also fossil hunters. And his second son, Charles M. Sternberg, is the one who discovered the most complete known skeleton of Marsh's Hesperornis regalia, although he didn't find a skull. So in the 1870s, deep time and evolution were fairly new concepts. Marsh believed in Darwinism, but Cope was a neo-Lamarckian. Thomas Huxley in England often defended Charles Darwin. He was actually known as Darwin's bulldog, and he often argued with Richard Owen about Darwinism. Huxley became friends with Marsh, and in 1876, Huxley came to America. Marsh showed Huxley his collections, including a lot of horse fossils that he'd found back in 1868. 
Marsh thought that horses had originated in the Americas, not Europe, and had documented 30 species in three families and showed the horse's evolution. After two days, Huxley was convinced and impressed. This story showed a complex relationship between species and the environment, and it was the first physical proof of evolution. So Huxley gave talks about the horses, and that was covered by the New York Times. Marsh started championing evolution, and in the keynote address before the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences annual meeting in 1877, he said, quote, To doubt evolution today is to doubt science, and science is only another name for truth. On the other hand, Cope didn't think that natural selection explained the reasons for evolution, at least not enough. Darwinism also seemed to celebrate the rich, denigrate the poor, and elevate nationalism and war. So Cope thought that the theory of evolution also didn't explain variation. In 1869, Cope tried to rework the theory with an 80-page pamphlet called Origin of Genera that said that variation was created by the, quote, acceleration or retardation of characteristics. And this force was internal and part of an overall design. He asked, what are the odds of good things happening by chance? Cope also believed the Lamarckian belief that environmental adaptations could be passed down from generation to generation. Variation was part of a design, a plan, and hard work and achievement by the father that could be passed on to the son. So that was this idea of a kinder, more gentle evolution. Cope A.S. Packard and John Ryder were the leaders of this neo-Lamarckian thought, and for a while, this was actually more popular in America than Darwinism. In the spring of 1876, Cope was dealing with charges of improperly keeping fossils that had been donated to the Academy of Natural Sciences. Mr. Gaskell of New Jersey accused him and said that he had sent several fossils he found to Cope for the Academy. But Gaskell was told by some visitor that the fossils never reached Philadelphia. He was probably told by Marsh. (laughs) In the summer of 1876, Cope called Sternberg to help him and another assistant, J.C. Isaac, look for saurians in the Judith River Badlands. It's where Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, and their 2,000 people had killed Custer. Cope downplayed the danger and said, there's no risk from the Sioux. This was six weeks after Custer's death. Cope and Sternberg met each other in person for the first time at the Omaha Railway Station. Sternberg thought Cope was weak because he seemed to have trouble walking, but a few days in the field and Cope was climbing steep cliffs. Cope, on the other hand, thought that Sternberg was weak because (laughs) he had an old leg injury and he limped, but he soon got past it and saw how capable Sternberg was. At Fort Benton, Cope bought a wagon and a team and he hired a cook and a scout. He chose the cook, Austin Merrill, for his fat face, thinking that that meant a love of cooking. Yeah, don't trust a skinny chef. (laughs) Their scout and hunter James Deere brought in ducks, fish, sage hens, and young bighorn sheep. Cope wrote that there was, quote, all sorts of cookery to the detriment of our dreams. (laughs) Sternberg wrote that the food was indigestible, and at night, Cope would have really bad nightmares. Quote, every animal of which we had found traces during the day played with him at night, tossing him into the air, kicking him, trampling upon him. When I waked him, he would thank me cordially and lie down to another attack. Sometimes he would lose half the night in this exhausting slumber, but the next morning he would lead the party and be the last to give up at night. Cope was also reading the Bible every night. They went to the Judith River in Montana, and at the Judith River, they were near neutral ground for the Crow and Sioux, who were preparing for their annual buffalo hunt. Cope estimated that the Sioux, after battling at Little Bighorn, would not get to Judith River until October, and that they had some time for bone hunting. 
He was right, but a few days after they left, the military post on the Missouri where he left for home was overrun and a lot of soldiers were killed, so he was also lucky. The Crow and others were encamped along the river bottom and visited the Bone Hunters where they worked. Cope had several Crow chiefs for dinner, and they loved seeing him take out and put back in his false teeth. <laughs> One night, Crow chief Beaverheart and some of his men came to camp, thinking they were whiskey traders, and one of Cope's party nearly shot him. Cope told them to sleep nearby and then invite some friends over for breakfast. And six of them came over and they saw Cope take out his teeth. And then they asked him to do it again many times. <laughs> the crow left soon after and Cope lost some people from his camp. He lost the cook and the scout for fear of being attacked. But Cope stayed almost two more weeks. And they found 1,700 pounds of fossils. And of course, Cope wanted to find more. I like that they're measured in pounds. Yeah. <laughs> it's what they had to ship back. Yeah, that makes sense. The work, as you can imagine, was very difficult. One day, Sternberg slipped from a high ledge and thought that he would die in the boulders below. And then somehow he found himself back on the ledge and he said that he has no idea how. Another day, Isaac, who was also part of the team, disappeared for a while. Sternberg and Cope entered a ravine and was yelling for him. It was nearly dark when Cope found him, and he had fallen down and injured himself. Luckily, it wasn't too serious. There was one night where they were riding in the dark, and Cope wanted his horse to keep going, so he gave him the spurs, and Isaac did the same. And the next day, they saw that they'd actually come upon a 10-foot-wide gorge, and the horses luckily kept them alive and could see where they were going. Wow. Yes. But... Cope was able to identify 21 fossil species, including several dinosaurs, some of them from just teeth. They found the skull of Monoclonius crassus, which is the first known horned dinosaur. At the end of September, Cope decided to break camp and move up the river toward Cow Island, where the last steamer of the season would soon depart. They had 1,200 pounds of fossils. Cope and Jim Deere, also part of the team, went to the island to make arrangements. Isaac, Sternberg, and Merrill, another teammate, had to move their camp. They had to get the wagon out of the valley, so they left their supplies at Dog Creek. There was a steep ridge with loose shale. Isaac took the reins, and he urged the horses on. Then they got 30 feet up the incline. When the wagon and the horses rolled over and over, somehow landed, though upright, and the horses were unharmed, and Isaac was still in one piece. What? The three men made a windlass to drag the wagon up the slope to the prairie, and then the bones and goods and supplies could follow. Jim Deere and Cope came back, and Deere announced that Sitting Bull was rumored to be within 100 miles and heading in their direction, so he cleared out along with Merrill. They only had a few days to get everything to the Josephine. That's the name of the last boat on Cow Island. Cope, Sternberg, and Isaac put in a 14-hour day to move the bones, and they reached a ravine. They were three miles from Cow Island, and the steamer could come up and get the bones, so they unloaded the wagon and lowered it using an improvised block and tackle. On the way back to Cow Island, Cope did one more fossil hunt, because of course, and he and Sternberg had to make their way back to Cow Island in the dark. They did it by cutting a stout stick and tapping and feeling their way through the mountains and along the ledges. But there was early morning fog, and a sergeant thought that this was all a trick, so he didn't send the boat to ferry them across. Oh. Sternberg and Cope paced until the fog lifted, and then the sergeant finally saw who they were, and he sent a boat, but that capsized. So they sent a second boat to rescue the first boat, and then get Cope and Sternberg. 
The next morning, Cope and Sternberg sought out the steamer captain, and Cope said he had a four-horse wagon three miles below and would like to stop there on the way down to carry everything. The skipper said, if you want to go on this boat, you have until 10 o'clock tomorrow morning to be here when I leave for Downriver. So Cope had a little more than 24 hours to get everything over there. He purchased an old flat-bottomed sailboat and set off up the river. He had tried to borrow it, but the owner had heard his conversation with the captain and figured he could get more money. So Cope and Sternberg rode to camp. Isaac wasn't there. They didn't have time to search for him, though, so they packed and loaded. And then when they were ready, somehow Isaac turned up. He was looking for them in the Badlands. The three men swam horses across the river, and then they started for Cow Island. They attached a tow line to Old Major, their most dependable horse, and they started downstream. Sternberg rode the horse. There was a couple mountain men that Cope had met at Cow Island that stood on either bank with long poles to keep the boat from turning into shore. Isaac and Cope sat in the boat, and they unraveled the tow line when it got snagged on a rock or a branch. They made it when the sun was setting. Cope was covered in mud, and his clothes were all shredded, but his fossils were okay. <laughs> That's the important thing. Yes. This is around October, so most people are in furs and warm clothes, but Cope only had a summer suit left. They made it. The boat Josephine left, but at Fort Buford on the North Dakota border, General Hazen commandeered the steamer, prepared to unload passengers and cargo and fill it with soldiers to head back up the Missouri. The Sioux had started heading to Canada and crossed the river at Cow Island. There was a brief battle and five soldiers were killed. But a day later, Hazen decided to use another boat, so he let Josephine go. At Fort Lincoln, further down the river, the boat was stopped again and used to ferry soldiers, fresh recruits for the 7th Cavalry, with new saddles and horses to join the chase. Cope wrote in a letter, quote, The officers' wives watched from our new steamer. None knew that they would see their husbands again, but were cheerful, some too much so, but some showed their feelings. <laughs> some too cheerful. <laughs> when they're probably hiding yeah. their feelings, yeah. In the fall of 1876, Cope invited Sternberg East for the winter to help prepare the fossils, and Sternberg wrote about that and how much he enjoyed the experience of eating dinner with him often. March of 1877 is where the Bone Wars really start heating up. So Arthur Lakes, a clergyman who was teaching in Golden, Colorado, and his friend, a retired Navy captain, Henry Beckwith, were hunting for fossil leaves and measuring geological strata along Bear Creek in Colorado near Denver. Lakes was an Episcopalian minister, a school teacher, and amateur geologist, and the two found what they thought was a fossilized tree trunk. But then Lakes saw that it was too smooth, and he saw, quote, little patches of purplish hue. They came upon a, quote, monstrous vertebra in sandstone, which was almost three feet in circumference. Beckwith also found what he called a Herculean war club that was 10 inches in diameter and two feet long, and Lakes thought it was a leg bone. The two men, with help from a local blacksmith, took the bones to Morrison, Colorado. Then Lakes went back the next weekend and found more fossils, including one that looked like, quote, the stump of a large tree. On April 2nd, Lakes wrote to Marsh and included sketches of the bones and a geological cross-section of the hills, but Marsh never replied. Lakes set up camp on the banks of Bear Creek and worked with some of his former students to find more bones, and a lot of people helped to unload the bones, but the bones, unfortunately, were not in great shape. At one point, quote, a young fellow grabbed hold of the beautiful, smooth, polished shafter, only to have it, quote, crumbled like a biscuit in his hands. Lakes wrote to Marsh again on April 20th and still got no answer. So he had built up 10 crates of bones by the end of April, and he kept going through May. 
He ended up shipping a crate of bones to Marsh, 1,500 pounds, and then asked for money to pay for the laborer in the wagon. Lakes had only a teacher salary. At the same time, Lakes sent some vertebrae to cope. He didn't really know about the rivalry at this point. Clearly. <laughs> Lakes didn't hear back from Marsh, but he sent another letter on June 15th with more descriptions and material he'd found in sketches, and he ended his letter with, quote, If you wish to secure the further remains of these specimens, as well as those that have already got out, I hope you will write soon about it, as offers have been made me, and I should feel inclined to part with them to the highest bidder. So maybe he knew a little bit. But meanwhile, Cope wrote back almost immediately, and he asked Lakes to send the skull and the teeth and offered him aid to continue the work. Marsh finally sent a letter and a $100 check to Lakes on June 9th, but Lakes didn't get it until June 20th. Lakes wrote, quote, Despairing of hearing from you, I was on the lookout for anyone who would help me or make some sort of offer to purchase the specimens. Professor Cope having written me two or three letters on this point, offering to aid me in my research, I reproach myself for having been too hasty. Marsh then telegraphed Lakes and sent a telegram to Benjamin Mudge to send Mudge to Colorado. Lakes didn't get Marsh's telegram, though, until June 27th because the telegram had been sent to Golden instead of Morrison. So Marsh wanted all the bones, and he told Lakes not to tell anyone about the whereabouts of the fossils, but Lakes said that it was too late. He'd already sent the skulls to Cope, but they hadn't worked out an agreement yet, and Lakes had more specimens. But he also said it had been written about in the local Colorado Springs Gazette. So at the time, the tooth birds and horses were bigger than dinosaurs in paleontology, and that's why Marsh didn't respond to lakes at first. Also at that time, dinosaur material was so rare and fragmentary and not much was known, they were considered to be more oddities than anything else. But of course, the idea of Cope having fossils motivated Marsh. <laughs> Benjamin Mudge came to Bear Creek on June 29th and hired lakes for the summer at $125 a month and his student helper for $10 a month and a strong good man for $2 a day. He wired Marsh, quote, have made satisfactory arrangements for two months. Jones cannot interfere. It turns out that they had code words, and ammunition meant money, health was luck or success in the field, and B. Jones referred to cope. So what's the translation of that? That they made good arrangements for two months, and cope cannot interfere. Gotcha. So Mudge had Lake send Cope a telegram, and Marsh also sent his aide, Thomas Atwick Bostwick, to collect the bones from Cope in early August. He said, quote, please say to Professor Cope that the fossils are now the property of Yale College. <laughs> so, of course, then Cope didn't publish his paper on the bones that Lakes had sent him. Marsh published a one-page article in the July 1st edition of the American Journal of Science naming this dinosaur Titanosaurus montanus. It was estimated to be 50 feet long, which was the largest land animal known at that time. Only 50 feet. <laughs> yes. You call that a titanosaur? Well, we don't because Cope pointed out that the name was already the name of another dinosaur found in Montana, so then Marsh renamed it Atlantosaurus. And Marsh earlier had pointed out that Cope's Laleps name had been used before and renamed Laleps Dryptosaurus. So they did this often. In early August, Marsh named Apatosaurus, which was even bigger than Atlantosaurus, and that was based on fossils that Lakes had found. Mudge and Lakes got along. Apparently, Mudge had to use gunpowder to blast loose sandstone caps and split the rock walls to get to some of the fossils. So there were some rock slides and cave-ins, and Lakes once was hit in the eye by a flying rock fragment. Cope still managed to find some good fossils. 
Around the same time, he got a letter from O.W. Lucas, a schoolteacher in Canyon City, Colorado, and an amateur botanist. Lucas had been collecting plants on Oil Creek near Canyon City and found some fossil fragments that he sent to Cope. Cope agreed to pay 10 cents a pound. He published about it in August. It was called Camarasaurus and said it was, quote, the largest or most bulky animal capable of progression on land of which we have any account. This remarkable creature exceeds in its proportions any other land animal hitherto discovered, including the one found near Golden City by Professor Lakes. So an indirect slight to Marsh. Mm-hmm. The Camarasaurus bones were larger and better preserved because these were embedded in mudstone or shale instead of hard sandstone like the ones near Morrison. Cope also named Amphicelius, estimating that when on its hind legs, it was more than 130 feet tall. Marsh heard about Cope in Canyon City, so he sent Benjamin Mudge there. Mudge made it to Canyon City August 11th and found that the bones were much larger than Atlantosaurus. A year before, Marsh had hired David Baldwin to collect fossils in Canyon City, and he'd mentioned these bones to Marsh, but Marsh wasn't interested back then. Of course, now Marsh wrote to Baldwin annoyed, and Baldwin responded, quote, I had found bones in the Jurassic in several places before Lucas, but did not dig them up on account of not hearing from you. <laughs> Mudge got Lucas to give him some of his bones, however. He told Lucas that he could keep his agreement with Cope by sending him only the big bones, but he could send the small ones to Marsh. Lucas had wanted more money, but he did also want to keep his agreement with Cope. Mudge said that these bones looked like birds, and Marsh said, purchase the specimen. Marsh ended up naming that one Nanosaurus agilis. Other fossil hunters in the area included Samuel Williston, who was working for Marsh at the time, and Charles Sternberg, who was working for Cope at the time. These two men ended up on the same coach on their way out west, and both tried to figure out where the other was going, but without success. Hmm. Around this time, the first transcontinental railroad was being built through a remote part of Wyoming. In July 1877, Marsh got a letter from Harlow and Edwards about fossils in Como Bluff, Wyoming. Marsh sent Williston, who pretended he was going to Oregon so as not to tip off Cope. But Brown, a miner, had found the site and told the Smithsonian, who told Cope, and Cope had asked Brown for samples, so Marsh ordered his people take, quote, precautions to keep all other collectors not authorized by Professor Marsh out of the region. Harlow and Edwards wrote Marsh a second letter saying, quote, we are keeping our shipments of fossils to you as secret as possible, as there are plenty of men looking for such things, and if they could trace us, they could find discoveries which we've already made and which we have no desire to have known. It turns out that Harlow and Edwards were William Harlow Reed and William Edward Carlin, two men from the Union Pacific Railroad, who wanted to make money. Reed was a section foreman at Como, and Carlin was a station agent. They tried to negotiate a salary with Marsh. Marsh ended up winning the negotiations, though, and there was some discord after that. They felt slighted. There were so many fossils in this area. There were enough for Marsh to name Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, Diplodocus, and Brachiosaurus. Now we're heating up. Yes. Also Brontosaurus, but in his rush, Marsh accidentally used the Camarasaurus skull, which we know the story of Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus and all that mix-up. There were so many fossils that it was hard to study any of them too closely. The Brontosaurus, which was found in Quarry Number 10 of Como Bluffs, was the most complete sauropod skeleton found and described in great detail, but of course there was no head. So then Marsh found a head four miles away and thought it was right, and that was the Camarasaurus skull. Four miles. <laughs> <laughs> he was in a rush. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> 
Samuel Williston, who worked at the Peabody when Reconstruction was done, thought that Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus were similar. In 1903, after both Marsh and Cope were dead, Elmer Riggs of the Field Museum in Chicago raised the issue, and William Holland, director of the Carnegie Museum, wrote in 1914 that there was an error, so people noticed pretty soon. Yeah, so they figured out the mistake about that skull, and then later synonymized Brontosaurus with Apatosaurus, at least at the genus level. They still were separate species, but then many years later, it got revived by a manual shop just a few years ago. Yeah, and we go into that in much more detail in our episode 100. Marsh also named Morosaurus impar, but that turned out to be Camarasaurus. So as you can imagine, there's so many fossils excavated, but it was all haphazard and mixed up and also done by amateurs, so there were a lot of mistakes. Marsh also named Laosaurus gracilis, but that was later changed to Othenelia rex. There was a lot of tension around keeping fossils away from Cope. At one point, Williston was upset because a man named Haynes came by, claiming to sell groceries, but he knew a lot about fossils, and it's probable that he worked for Cope. Carlin thought it was Cope, but Williston saw a note that Haynes had written, and his penmanship was too good. Cope was known for having bad penmanship, (laughs) even though he wrote so many letters. They never did find out the true identity of Haynes. Marsh's men opened multiple quarries. At the peak, there were 12 at the site. This happened even though Marsh was months late on payments. <laughs> Carlin only stayed with Marsh for a year, and then in winter of 1879 started working for Cope. Reed stayed with Marsh, but Carlin was the station master, and he wouldn't let Reed work in the station room, so Reed had to work in the cold on the freight platform. Jeez, why'd he do that? Competition. They weren't working for the same person anymore. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Reed, in return, said he had, quote, taken the liberty to demolish to the best of my ability all remaining bones, as there are other parties in the field collecting. Oh. Yes. Williston later told Cope, after Williston stopped working for Marsh, that Marsh encouraged this. He wrote, quote, Professor Marsh did once indirectly request me to destroy Kansas fossils rather than let them fall into your hands. It is necessary for me to say I only despised him for it. Reed was always on his guard. One day, two strangers came to the quarries. Reed moved to the top of the quarry and dug out dirt and rock to fall on the men below and get in their way. They told him to leave, and he said, I was not quite ready to go yet. After four days of digging and Reed covering up their work, the men left. There were threats, but Reed wasn't scared. To help, Marsh sent Arthur Lakes from Morrison... Meanwhile, Carlin left the field. Cope replaced Carlin with Carlin's two brothers-in-law from Michigan named Hubble, and they got along with Marsh's men, and they sent Cope Allosaurus, which is now at the American Museum of Natural History. In early August 1879, Cope went to Como Bluff, but he didn't stay long. While there, he made a deal with A.M. Cassidy for exclusive rights to excavate fossils from a tract along Oil Creek. Marsh had spread the word in the West that Cope was a damned thief, so his group guarded their quarry to keep Cope out. Lakes met Cope, and he wrote in his diary, quote, The monstrous, horrendous Cope has been and gone, and I must say that what I saw of him I liked very much his manner, is so affable, and his conversation very agreeable. I only wish I could feel sure he had a sound reputation for honesty. <laughs> so it seemed everyone believed Marsh. Lakes and Reed, unfortunately, didn't get along. To keep them both, Marsh said that they should work separately, Lake spent some time painting the landscapes, which were used later to study how the quarries used to look. There was also a lot of tension in general between all of Marsh's men. A lot of fighting, brandishing guns, 
It wasn't clear who was in charge, so a lot of quitting as well. At one point, Marsh hired another man, Kennedy, to help Reed, but once Marsh hired him, Kennedy no longer thought that he had to take orders from Reed. Williston eventually quit after fights and stayed with Carlin at his ranch and then started working for Cope. Meanwhile, Reed struggled to get Marsh to pay him because Marsh never prioritized paying bills. Marsh kept his quarries open at Como until 1889, but Reed eventually left in 1883 and tried sheep ranching, and then in 1897 became an assistant geologist museum curator at the University of Wyoming. In early September 1877, Lakes went to Morrison, and he found what Marsh named Stegosaurus. In 1877, Cope got some new friends and allies. Henry Osborne and his friend William Berryman Scott became interested in paleontology at Princeton, studying with Cope's associate A.H. Guyot. After they graduated, they wanted to go fossil hunting. They asked Cope for advice about Bridger Basin, but he didn't really give them information. So they went to Fort Bridge, where Marsh's men gave them the same treatment that they had given to Cope in 1872, which is to say, very poor treatment. So they ended up hating Marsh and liking Cope. Scott wrote of Marsh, quote, I came closer to hating him than any other human being that I have known, and his hostility to me had a really detrimental effect on my career. After Cope realized that these two weren't working with Marsh, he became much more friendly and gave them a full run of his collections. Osborne and Scott took trips to Philadelphia to consult with both Cope and Lady. And Cope also went to Princeton to help them classify and arrange their Bridger finds. Osborne and Scott also requested to see Marsh's Bridger Basin material. He reluctantly agreed, but then he ordered his staff to cover all the other material in the Peabody workshops, and he put on a pair of carpet slippers and stayed in the corners of the rooms to watch over them. He wore the slippers because they made him quieter. So, of course, Osborne and Scott both became loyal to Cope. Marsh had a lot of people who worked for him at the Peabody Museum. This included Thomas Boswick, artist Frederick Berger, and William Hobson, who made engraving plates. There was also Adam Herman, the restorer, and Tobias Kaffler, who made plaster casts. And George Bird Grinnell was there part-time while working on his dissertation. Marsh's first permanent assistant in paleontology was Oscar Harger, but Marsh didn't allow him to publish any of his own papers. Marsh rarely gave anyone credit in his own work. Cope had some help too, but he had a lot less room. He actually had so many fossils that he stored most of them in the basement of the Centennial Exposition Building in Fairmount Park, which was a memento of the 1876 fair. Cope and Gesmar worked in Cope's Philadelphia townhouse, and they unpacked and prepared his bones and analyzed. They didn't have much room, so when they wanted to reconstruct the leg of a Camarasaurus, they had to hang it down the stairway between the second floor bedroom and the first floor parlor. <laughs> 1878 and 1879 were good years for Marsh and not so much for Cope. Joseph Henry, president of the National Academy of Sciences and secretary of the Smithsonian and the U.S. preeminent scientist, died at age 80, and this led to the government wanting to consolidate its surveys. According to Scott, who was a Princeton paleontologist, Marsh and Cope's Quote, paleontological war was indirectly sustained and abetted by the chaotic state of the geological work done by the agencies of the U.S. government. Marsh was now the president of the National Academy of Sciences. Republican reformers and the scientific politicos decided to have the National Academy of Sciences considered all the surveys and expenses and come up with a system to basically have the best results with the least amount of money. Powell and Hayden were fighting for their own surveys. There was also King and another one named Hewitt. 
John Strong Newberry wrote that Hayden had become a fraud and lost the sympathy and respect of the country. Most of his papers that came out of his survey were paleontology, and the argument was that was only interesting to scientists. And of course, Cope had worked for Hayden. During these debates, Cope left for Europe, and Hayden went to Wyoming. His health was poor. He may have been suffering from syphilis, which he later died from. Cope went to Trinity College in Dublin in the annual meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. He took drawings of Camarasaurus with him, and he had a good time. He wrote, quote, The only traces of Marsh's handiwork I could discover was in the indifference of Huxley's, which I ascribed to that source. He took no pains to see me or hear any of my papers, a coolness I suspect he would not have shown to friend Marsh. I, however, introduced myself, and I think we should have had some pleasant conversation. Cope was gone for about three months. He wrote about women he danced with and found attractive to his wife, Annie. Cope had a womanizer reputation, but it seemed that he told his wife everything, and there's also no evidence that he actually did anything. On November 6th, the National Academy of Sciences gathered in New York City at Columbia University to consider a report on merging all the surveys. They proposed that all collections made by surveys be deposited in the National Museum. Hayden had previously allowed researchers to retain part of the material in exchange for their work. The House of Representatives then voted to consolidate most of the scientific surveys and abolish the Hayden, Powell, Wheeler, and King surveys and made instead the U.S. Geological Survey. Clarence King became the first director of the U.S. Geological Survey. Hayden had a minor position under King. Wheeler was out. Powell was appointed as one of three commissioners to the creation of the Public Lands Commission. King and Marsh were friends, and Powell and Marsh got along, so this seemed to be in Marsh's favor. Cope had no access to government resources at this time because of Marsh, and Marsh also influenced or controlled universities and professional organizations. In 1878, Cope bought the American Naturalist for $1,500 so that he could more easily publish his own papers. The summer of 1879 was the last summer that he had money to purchase specimens from the field. Cope started investing in mining ventures in the West to try and get more money. So in the 1880s, Cope had lost money, but he was still happy and hopeful and still keeping up his feud with Marsh. Osborne said Cope was, quote, thoroughly enjoying the fight for its own sake. In 1881, Powell wanted to appoint Marsh as the U.S. Geological Survey's vertebrate paleontologist. Marsh was reluctant, though. Between 1868 and 1882, he had spent $200,000 of his own money on expeditions and fossil collections. But if he was connected with the survey, the government would own the fossils, because he had pushed for that policy, and he wanted to own type specimens. Powell had originally wanted Lady, but Lady had said no. In 1882, Marsh eventually agreed, and he made a deal so he could keep some specimens in his own collection. Powell then increased the survey's budget from 100000 to 500000 Wow. Yes. Over 10 years, the government paid around $150,000 for a survey staff of 54 full and part-time field collectors and lab workers, and a $4,000 annual salary for Marsh, which he put back into the survey work. It also paid for lab expenses and three really big monographs that Marsh published between 1885 and 1896 that were printed and illustrated. Marsh was able to live well. In 1876, that's when he built his 18-room, three-story brownstone mansion. It took until 1881 to finish decorating, and this is the one with the wigwam room. Meanwhile, Cope was passed over for an appointment at the Wagner Free Institute, one of Philadelphia's scientific museums and schools. Cope was pretty bitter about not getting the job, and he wrote some 
anti-Semitic sentiments to Lady. Cope was hired by the Geological Survey of Canada, but there wasn't much work to do and the fees were modest and there was no field work, though he did go to Ottawa and Montreal. In 1881, Cope was investing in mining to help pay for collecting fossils and to subsidize the American naturalist and to support his wife and daughter. In 10 years, he had spent $75,000 on exploration and collections. He also employed people. Two of his collectors, Williston and David Baldwin, for example, used to work for Marsh. He also employed Jacob Wartman, a 25-year-old physician-turned-scientist. Cope invested in the Sierra Mining Companies, which operated in the Southwest, but it wasn't a great mining region. The railroads made mining more accessible, but there were still fights with tribes, like with the Apaches. And there were a lot of labor problems and pilfering, rumors that sent stock prices plummeting, and some officials that sold stock issues and watered down the investment. At a stockholder meeting in July, the Sierra Mining Company made Cope president. He fired the mine superintendent and hired Fred Einlich, an American who had learned geology in Germany and then was a top aide in the Hayden survey. The company ended up having four lawsuits, and that meant no profit for Cope. After a while, Cope was ousted as president and dropped from the executive committee. The mines didn't make much money, but Cope invested in a couple more, and that led to more losses. So he lost his money, and now he was thinking of selling his fossil collection, which was all he had left. Cope also worked on Cope's Bible, the vertebra of the tertiary formations of the West. It was 1,002 pages long with text and had 134 lithographic plates. It described 350 species, and it weighed 15 pounds and was a foot thick. Cope put the final touches on his manuscript and tried to get a permanent position at the Smithsonian or on the survey. He and Powell argued over this manuscript. Powell wanted to speed up the delivery of the work and limit the size of the manuscript to no more than 500 pages. You mean he didn't want it to be a foot thick and 15 pounds? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Blasphemy. Right. But Cope thought that this was all a plot to prevent him from publishing. (laughs) Cope tried to get hired as curator at the Academy of Natural Sciences, but he was voted down. He was also frustrated with the Academy. He told Lady if more emphasis wasn't placed on professionalism, Philadelphia's place in the scientific community would slip. Lady agreed with him, but the Academy didn't have money for professional staff. In July 1881, President Garfield, who was a Marsh and Powell ally, was assassinated. And after his death, Congress looked at all the scientific surveys and agencies again. There is one Alabama congressman, Hillary Herbert, who believed in small government. He thought that there should be no government role in science at all. They shouldn't spend any money or have any federal facilities constructed, and those that existed already should be sold. Cope worked to discredit Powell and Marsh and tried to dismantle the Powell survey. He made sure that the survey and Marsh were targets, but... It's unclear why he was doing this, because this was happening at the same time he was trying to get Powell to publish his last two volumes of work that he'd done for Hayden, the 1,000 pages of text. Harvard professor Agassi also rallied against the survey, and he believed that decentralized private science was more powerful, and that was a common opinion at the time. So Agassi, Cope, and Herbert worked together. They said that private science was cheaper. On the other hand, Powell said science was in the public interest, and scientists needed government work to speed up their work for the public good. Cope claimed that the survey's collections were an issue, and Powell had to prove what the government paid for and what it should get in return. This actually hurt Cope later. Marsh also had to defend his role in the U.S. Geological Survey. 
There were no significant cuts or changes in the end, but it did lead to tightening the survey's appropriation and disbursement procedures. At this point, it didn't really hurt Marshall. In 1885, Cope was now low on money, and he had to move his family out of his home to rent it out. He sold his investments in mining for almost nothing in 1886, and he had a hard time getting work as well as getting funding for his book. By 1889, he was broke. Marsh, on the other hand, was doing well. He had lots of dinner parties and social events, but he took on too many projects at once, and that led to a lot of procrastination. Marsh also had many employees, but they didn't really like working for him. He wasn't great at paying on time, and he also didn't allow his employees to publish. George Bird Grinnell was an exception, but Oscar Harger, Samuel Williston, Erwin Barbour, and George Bauer clashed with Marsh. Marsh used to give sets of fossils to each employee with specific instructions on what to analyze or compare, and then he would quiz them and take notes, but not share any of his thoughts. Then, when the paper on the fossils were published, they might see a phrase in the text that showed that he had disagreed with them on something. Oscar Harger had a heart condition, and he worked his way through Yale. He was an expert, but Marsh didn't let him publish in the field of vertebrate paleontology. At least two professors tried to help, but Marsh didn't change his mind. So instead, Harger published a few papers on spiders and microscopic pond animals. He had poor health, and he was poor, so he couldn't quit. Samuel Williston collected fossil fish, and in New Haven, Marsh wouldn't let him work on the fossil fish, saying they would distract him from his duties. Williston tried to part on amiable terms, but was angry when Harger died at age 44 from a cerebral hemorrhage after working for Marsh for 15 years. In an obituary for the American naturalist, Williston said Harger was responsible for a lot of the work that Marsh claimed. Bauer left Peabody in 1890 after paying off $470 in debts to Marsh, and then he ended up lecturing at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Two years later, he was a professor of paleontology at the New University of Chicago, but then he became paralyzed, so he returned to Germany in 1897. Marsh also employed Charles Sternberg and John Bell Hatcher. Sternberg worked for Marsh, and he did like Cope, but when Cope couldn't pay him anymore, Sternberg worked for Marsh to support his family and keep doing what he loved. In 1884, Sternberg was working for Marsh at a Long Island site in Kansas. Hatcher worked for Sternberg. Hatcher was 23 at the time. But Hatcher was impatient, and he thought he could do a better job than Sternberg, so he wrote to Marsh after two days of working for Sternberg, asking to be allowed to work on his own. And in five letters that month, he kept arguing that he should be working alone. In August, Sternberg was away, and there was a dispute over access to the Sternberg quarry with the property's owner, James Overton. Hatcher made a deal, and the Sternberg quarry became the Marsh Quarry. Sternberg wrote to Marsh, quote, I wish to write to you on a subject which, if not fully settled, I will resign my position and collect either for myself or Professor Cope. Now, if after two years' work I have discovered the only rich formation on this deposit in the state, I am to be turned out of the locality by an assistant and all the work given to him, I have had enough of it. Marsh suggested that the two work separately. Hatcher had a new approach where he divided the site into a checkerboard of five-foot squares and systematically excavated square by square. He sent Marsh a chart of the site and then a chart of each square to show the location of each bone that was found. This was a major advance in fieldwork. Marsh did pay Sternberg, but Sternberg now lost access to the quarry in the future and he was very unhappy about it. Marsh sent Hatcher to northern Texas after closing the Kansas quarry, and Hatcher had trouble getting paid, so Hatcher threatened to quit multiple times over a span of eight years. 
If you recognize the name Hatcher, it could be because he's the one who found Triceratops. Marsh wrote about new horned dinosaurs, but he disregarded Cope's Monoclonius, which was the first known horned dinosaur, and tried to claim that title for himself. With all of the new fossils, defining dinosaurs became more difficult. It used to be that dinosaurs were large animals, and then dinosaurs like Nanosaurus were discovered. So Cope, Marsh, and Huxley all tried to get a better definition. And then Cope's friend, Harry Grover Seeley, said that there were two large but distinct orders based on two types of hips. There were the Ornithischia and Saurischia, the bird-hipped and the lizard-hipped. In July of 1886, Cope was still trying to get approval in Congress to publish his last volumes of his Hayden work, the 1,000-pager. He tried to go through the new Secretary of the Interior, Quintus Lamar, who didn't have much interest in science and referred him back to Powell. Cope waited for multiple hours on multiple days to see Lamar, but Lamar still didn't see him. Finally, they did see each other after Cope bugged enough people to bug Lamar for him. Fred Einlich helped Cope lobby, and they were about to add it to the budget, around $3,800 for printing and expenses, to the sundry and civil appropriations bill in the Senate. On July 27th, though, his bill was thrown out on a technicality, probably because of Powell. One argument was that the, quote, government should publish nothing from specimens that do not belong to them. So this is Cope's words coming back to bite him. Yeah, and it's kind of the way that modern science looks at things, too. Yes, but it wasn't good for Cope then because he was having financial problems. <laughs> the naturalist was also in debt as the publisher had gone bankrupt. Cope tried again to get his appropriations bill in the Senate, and Representative Randall killed it in the House Appropriations Committee. Still, Cope managed to write many papers. He wrote 35 papers in 1886, 15 in 1887, and 16 in 1888. He also had what he called his Martiana. He wrote, quote, In these papers, I have a full record of Marsh's errors from the very beginning, which at some future time I may be tempted to publish. Jeez. Yes. So some of this came also from complaints from people who had worked for Marsh. Cope actually went out and interviewed them. Cope wrote to Osborne in 1885 that four men at Yale in Europe and America wanted to publish their statements about Marsh. He said, quote, The publication of the paper will be a blessing to American science generally, for the demoralizing effect of Marsh's success is incalculable. He has completely suppressed my work. He also said that Marsh is, quote, more of a pretender than even I had supposed him to be. It is now clear to me that Marsh is simply a scientific political adventurer who has succeeded in many ways other than those proceeding from scientific merit in placing himself in the leading scientific position in the country. In addition to his Marshiana, Cope named an animal once, Cope Hater. Osborne asked him for the meaning, and he said, quote, Osborne, it's no use looking up the Greek derivation of cope hater, because it is not classic in origin. It is derived from the union of two English words, cope and hater, for I have named it in honor of the number of cope haters that surround me. <laughs> Later in 1886, Spencer Bard made Marsh the Smithsonian's chief paleontologist. So Marsh was still doing well. In 1888, Cope tried again to get funding for his last two volumes of the Hayden Survey, this time with Interior Secretary William Villas. He couldn't meet with him, but after three weeks he did see him, and Villas said he didn't know anything about the survey and he didn't have time for it. Cope met with Powell, who proposed publishing some of the work under the new survey if Cope gave a set of fossils to the National Museum. 
He proposed a salary, but it wouldn't start until July. So that spring was very difficult for Cope. He didn't get any grants, and he was passed up on an American Museum of Natural History position. He was considered for a spot at the Smithsonian, but his history and his reputation went against him. Meanwhile, Marsh ran again for president of the National Academy of Sciences. After six years, people wanted someone new, but Cope led a campaign against Marsh, and it backlashed, and so Marsh won again. (laughs) Cope was also late with his mortgage payments and paying the publisher of The Naturalist. He even asked Osborne for some money and told him, sorry to have to ask. Things did turn around for Cope a little bit in 1889. He became a professor in geology and mineralogy at the University of Pennsylvania, but it's not clear how or why. Possibly someone had been working to end the Cope and Marsh rivalry, but it's unclear who that was. It probably wasn't Osborne, because he was pretty transparent when it came to Cope, but it may have been Lady or someone else from the University of Pennsylvania. Cope tried again to get his survey papers published, this time with the Secretary of the Interior, John Noble. Powell wrote to Noble and said it would, quote, require 12 to 15 years' time and an expenditure of not less than $60,000, and also said that the, quote, collections upon which Professor Cope was working were chiefly the property of the government. Powell wrote that Cope should be told his collections should go to the National Museum in Washington, D.C., Cope got a letter from Noble on December 16th telling him to give his fossil collections, which was basically all he had left at that time, to the U.S. National Museum because they were government property acquired via the Hayden survey. But Cope had spent at least $75,000 of his own money to get those fossils, and he had kept records and receipts and was able to prove his ownership. That's fair. You spend over a million dollars in today's money to excavate something. (laughs) It's probably yours. Especially when that's all he had left. Yeah. Cope then wrote to Osborne, quote, when a wrong is to be righted, the press is the best and most Christian medium of doing it. It replaces the old time shotgun and bludgeon and is a great improvement. So he took his Marciana notes to the press. Cope reached out to freelance journalist William Hosea Balu to publish his Marciana. One of Balu's biographers wrote that Balu was, quote, a mushroom collector with delusions of grandeur. Balu probably thought that this story would be good publicity, so he shopped the piece around in late December of 1889. Nobody wanted it except the New York Herald, and that was run by James Gordon Bennett Jr., who was wealthy and crazy and did a lot of ridiculous things, and apparently William Randolph Hearst imitated him. Balu got a byline on the article, but only because he wasn't on staff. Apparently Bennett took credit for anything that his staff wrote. Balu was not a good journalist. He only partly covered the story and he faked interviews. Alfred Romer said that if scientists, quote, merely passed the time of day with him, they were liable to be misquoted for a column or so. (laughs) In the meantime, the New York Times had sent a reporter to the American Geological Society's December meeting to fact-check Balu's story before they passed on the story. This reporter tipped off the scientific community about the article, and they told him that it was, quote, an old controversy and a very deplorable one that has been thoroughly investigated by the National Academy of Sciences and has been discredited. When Marsh heard that this article was being published in the New York Herald, he tried to stop it, and he even went to William Pepper, president of the University of Pennsylvania, and demanded that Cope withdraw the article or be fired. Pepper at that time was being blackmailed for something, and Marsh threatened to make that scandal public. Cope wrote to Osborne for support, who went to Philadelphia to talk to Pepper. 
The New York Herald also warned Pepper that he would have cause to regret trying to keep Cope quiet. Marsh ended up seeing an advanced copy of the article and confronted Williston, who was quoted in it, and persuaded him to make a disclaimer that it was published without Williston's permission. Marsh wanted Williston to say that it was false, but he didn't succeed in getting that. Marsh also tried to convince the Herald not to run the article at all, and he wrote that he had some doubts about Cope's sanity, because when they first met in Berlin so many years ago, that's when he was having mental health issues. The New York Herald, though, published the article on January 12, 1890, and it was styled like an interview between Cope and Balu. Cope talked about all of Marsh's technical errors, such as calling a dinosaur bone a buffalo horn, and other mistakes that the general public wouldn't care about or even know about. He also mentioned things that Marsh's assistants had said, and included a letter Williston had written in 1886. The scientific community was not happy with the article or the articles that came after it. W.B. Scott said that he wrote the Herald to not use him in the article. He said he disliked Marsh, but he didn't want to be part of the spectacle, though the Herald claimed that they never got his letter. In addition to the article, Cope published a series of articles by Marsh's assistants in The American Naturalist and turned them into a pamphlet as a companion piece. In this pamphlet, Marsh's assistant, Bauer, said that he'd seen Marsh tell visiting scientists that certain specimens were boxed and inaccessible when they were in the room and they were under a cloth. Another assistant, Barbour, said that Marsh was using, quote, government time and money in beautifying his own private collection, and that Marsh had used plaster of Paris to improve his fossils without noting their restorations. Lots of people did that kind of thing, though. Yes, but there was only one Marshiana. <laughs> the January 12th Herald article didn't get much buzz. Apparently, there were a few other articles in other publications, including the Philadelphia Inquirer, where they interview Lady. Lady spoke well of both Marsh and Cope, and he said that he didn't think there was any plagiarism, as had been mentioned in the Herald article. But Cope felt betrayed, and he wrote to Osborne, quote, poor Lady has come out against me, just as he has always done. The Herald article also attacked Powell. They offered Powell space to counterattack, and he wrote a full page in the January 13th issue. He wrote, quote, the author of the recent attack upon me and my work is Professor E.D. Cope, and he has at last placed publicly on record the slanders he has secretly been repeating for years. Whether he makes the statements directly or conceals them in the form of an interview with himself or others, they are his own. He has devoted some of his best years to its preparation and to the preparation of the public for it, and it may thus be regarded as the crowning work of his life. He also wrote, quote, I am not willing to be betrayed into any statement which will do injustice to Professor Cope. He is the only one of the coterie who has scientific standing. The others are simply his tools and act on his inspiration. The professor himself has done much valuable work for science. He has made great collections in the field and has described these collections with skill. Altogether, he is a fair system artist. If his infirmities of character could be corrected by advancing age, if he could be made to realize that the enemy which he sees forever haunting him as a ghost is himself, he could yet do great work for science. The Herald then interviewed Cope about Powell's response. Until this point, they've been pro-Cope, but now they portray Cope as jealous and a failure. Marsh took a while to respond. It's possible he was weighing his options. It's also possible he had his own Copiana. <laughs> Eventually, he called Cope a slanderer and said that Cope had raided private collections and museum collections, including Marsh's. And he also mentioned Cope's mental health issues again when they met in Germany. Not much came out of his response, and then on January 26th, the Herald published more on the feud, including an editorial that criticized both Marsh and Cope. 
In one of the articles, Balu wrote a rhyme called Paleozoic Poetry, The Unfortunate Pterodactyl Wings Its Flight Through Prosody. It read, Professor Cope to Professor Marsh, your ignorance of saurians is something very strange. The mammals of the Laramie are far beyond your range. You fail to see that certain birds enjoyed the use of teeth. The pterodactyls perched on trees, nor feared the ground beneath. You stole your evoluted horse from Kowalewski's brain, and previous people's fossils smashed from Mexico to Maine. To Permian reptiles, you are blind. In short, I do insist, you are, hink ille lacrime, you are a plagiarist. Professor Marsh to Professor Cope, "'Tis strange that you, who always get the cart before the horse, "'should dare to state my equine screed I filched without remorse. "'Tis strange that you, who helped to kill a moribund magazine, "'should hint that I have fossil smashed a prettiest Pliocene. "'Your reference to a horn cone on an ischium sends a chill. "'Professor Huxley is my friend, and likewise Buffalo Bill. "'Though paleontologic facts you've studied since your youth, "'you shun the streptosauria as if they were the truth.'" It's kind of unclear why Balu wrote this rhyme. <laughs> it's a fun one to read, but it seems odd in a newspaper article. Yeah. So no one else really talked about the newspaper articles. They didn't really care. But they did make Cope and Marsh both look bad. At first, it seemed to hurt Cope more. But then in 1892, Congressman Hillary Herbert from Alabama came back onto the scene. So in 1890, there was a drought. And then in 1892, there was a recession. And during the drought, Powell was tasked with mapping out the topography and geology of the West to figure out how to best develop it, because this type of land was much different than the land east of the Mississippi. While he was doing that, the government shut down the ability to claim land so that it wouldn't end up all with private investors. People wanted the government to open the lands up again out West and to use them for reservoirs and irrigation projects instead of for research. Herbert proposed cutting funds for paleontology, he was partly influenced by Agassi from Harvard, who still thought that paleontology should be privately funded. Herbert had heard about Marsh's monograph on Odontornithes. This is a class that he proposed of birds with teeth, and he brought a copy to show Congress. This monograph was printed on large paper with gilt edges. There were actually only a few copies with this type of special printing, and Marsh had paid for them himself. Still, Herbert said that the government was paying for, quote, birds with teeth. He said, quote, if there is on this earth an abstract science, it is paleontology. What practical use has the government for paleontology? Marsh proved that he published the monograph before the government survey was even formed and that he had paid for the expensive copies. He wrote, quote, as to the practical value of paleontology, there is more money wasted every year in the United States searching for coal in places where a paleontologist would know at a glance none could be found than would pay <laughs> for all the works ever published on paleontology. That's fun. Yes. But it wasn't enough. Senator William Allison from Iowa asked Osborne for his opinion on the survey. Osborne ended up walking a fine line. He was defending paleontology while also making Marsh look bad. He said invertebrate paleontology was key in determining the age of geological strata, and it was, quote, at the basis of all geological work. He said that paleontology was valuable, but the government survey was not run well, and that the government's collections, quote, are retained in the private storerooms of a college museum instead of being transported directly to the National Museum, which sounds like he's referring to Marsh. He also mentioned that it was difficult for visiting scientists to see the material. And he said, quote, Professor Marsh used every means to prevent the American Museum of Natural History from collecting in one of the great horizons of Wyoming upon the grounds that the government had prior rights there. 
On July 20th of 1892, Marsh got a telegraph from Powell that said, quote, appropriation cut off, please send your resignation at once. Powell ended up resigning in 1894. Because of the recession, Marsh's Peabody money wasn't doing as well. His trusts just weren't getting as much. He had to mortgage his home for $30,000 and ask Yale for a salary after 24 years of not being paid. Still a pretty good deal for Yale. Yes. Hatcher was still working for Marsh, but he was getting tired of not being paid on time and not moving up in his career. Because though Marsh let Hatcher work at the Peabody, he ended up sponsoring someone else, Charles Beecher, for a PhD instead of Hatcher. In 1891, Hatcher had applied to be an assistant in paleontology in Princeton, but Osborne told him it was difficult partly because of representations to his character. This probably came from Marsh. So Hatcher went to Marsh, and Marsh sent a telegram to Osborne saying the statements were false. Hatcher still didn't get the job, but Marsh did increase Hatcher's salary to $2,000 a year. Eventually, though, Marsh couldn't afford to pay for Hatcher in the field and let him go. He could also no longer afford to send for fossils from the field, so he was now done collecting. Hatcher ended up becoming the curator of vertebrate paleontology at Princeton and then went on expeditions in Patagonia. Meanwhile, in 1892, Cope was doing the Texas Geological Survey. Lady had died in 1891, so Cope became the chair of zoology and comparative anatomy at the University of Pennsylvania, which was Lady's position. He wrote a lot. He averaged about 43 publications per year in the 1890s. He also published in 1899 the Batrachian of North America, a detailed analysis of amphibians and frogs. In total, he wrote more than 1,200 scientific papers, plus general interest articles and editorials. He made a lot of mistakes, but overall his work had value. After Texas, Cope went to the Dakotas. He went with a guide, Oscar Hotchkiss, who was the son of a Philadelphia doctor, but loved to travel the prairies on his own and also stay with the Sioux. Things were a little dangerous. 19 months earlier, a few hundred Lakota Sioux were massacred on the banks of Wounded Knee Creek. Cope stopped at the Little Eagle settlement and heard from a Miss Collins and her assistant, Miss Pratt, that the Sioux had a legend about big bones and that evil giant monsters had roamed the land and the Great Spirit sent lightning to destroy the beasts and their bones were scattered across the prairies and badlands. The Sioux didn't touch the bones in case the same fate happened to them. But a boy knew where they were and led Cope to them. Cope found a lot of dinosaur bones and fragments and a nearly complete hadrosaur skull. He also found a trachodon skull, which was named in 1856 by Lady based on teeth that Hayden had collected. In July of 1893, Cope was back in North Dakota searching for dinosaurs. He got 1,500 pounds of material, including Edmontosaurus, Triceratops, and Thesalosaurus. Cope's daughter Julia married William Collins in May of 1894, and Annie moved to Haverford to be near them. Cope lived 12 miles away. According to Osborne, Annie and Cope had split up. Osborne wrote to a book editor years later, quote, There are plenty of scandalous stories attached to Cope, you know. His wife left him, but largely for financial reasons, I judge, and of course that made talk in the 90s. There is also a story that Mrs. Cope left him because she found one snake too many in her shoe. They continued on amicable terms, however. Osborne also thought Annie couldn't handle Cope because of, quote, usual difficulties of keeping house with a genius. Annie and Cope still visited each other, though. Around this time, 1895 to 1896-ish, Cope started selling his collections, possibly to help pay for Julia's marriage. He wanted to sell them to the Philadelphia Academy, but they either couldn't or wouldn't buy them, and he ended up selling some of his collection to the American Museum of Natural History, where Osborne was curator of paleontology. 
He sold about 40% for $32,000, though he did ask for $50,000. Osborne told him that collection techniques had gotten better in the last 20 years, so it didn't make sense to pay so much for the material. On the other hand, Marsh's private collection ended up being valued at over a million dollars. Wow. Well, he had more money to begin with. (laughs) (laughs) So in 1895, Cope was elected the president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Cope didn't even campaign, but his friends Scott and Osborne helped to get him elected. And Cope was able to hire Sternberg again. Meanwhile, as Marsh got older, he got more secretive. In the mid to late 1890s, Marsh was classifying and restoring his earlier finds, like Brontosaurus, Triceratops, Stegosaurus. He also went to Europe and restored Iguanodon and Megalosaurus. He made them bipedal. Sternberg went fossil hunting for Cope in early 1896, but he was told to go to a place without fossils where the weather was cold and wet, and Sternberg was pretty miserable, so he asked for Cope's permission to end the expedition. Cope wrote back, quote, "...few men pursue a more useful life than yourself." And when the final accounts comes to be recorded, you shall have no occasion to be ashamed of your record. I personally have the highest respect to your devotion to science. Sternberg said that this was the best side of Cope's character, and so he stayed another month. In February of 1897, Cope was sick with what he called cystitis. They were these periods of severe gastrointestinal pain with periods of enforced rest. It was a flare-up from when he got really sick at Fort Bridger in 1872 when he had collapsed and had delirious fevers. His wife was also sick at that time, so they didn't spend too much time together. Also, his daughter Julia's husband had grip, and Julia was taking care of both Annie and her husband. Wow. Yes. By then, Cope had sold his home and was sleeping on a cot surrounded by his fossil collection. The cause of his sickness is unknown. He did have a reputation as a womanizer, and there's no medical records, so some people thought he had syphilis, but there's not much evidence for this. Cope had a doctor, but he self-medicated with formaldehyde and methanol to ease his pain, but this made him depressed. And also maybe blind. It wasn't great. (laughs) He relied heavily on Miss Anna Brown, his part-time secretary. Some days he was stuck in bed, and then he'd feel better and he'd get up and he'd give a lecture at the university or go on many excursions, like one time he went to Virginia to look for fossils, and then he would feel worse. For a few days, Charles Knight spent time with Cope and worked on his drawings. Cope worked with Balu again, this time on a feature with Charles Knight's illustrations in American Century magazine. The feature came out seven months after Cope died, but it was one last blow to Marsh because it was written to sound as if Cope had discovered all the dinosaurs. (laughs) And it featured Lalaps, the dinosaur Cope had originally named and Marsh had changed to Dryptosaurus 20 years before. In April, Osborne tried to get Cope to have surgery. Osborne even spoke to a prominent surgeon in New York City about it. But surgery was very risky in those days, so Cope kept delaying. Osborne said, quote, Cope was old and weary at 56. He had borne the heat of battle and wanted to rest. 56, yeah, he was old. (laughs) (laughs) Younger than the age his father died. That's true. Cope kept getting attacks of pains and feeling weaker. And he ended up dying on April 12th, though the exact cause is unknown. At his Quaker funeral, six men sat quietly around his coffin, and they were surrounded by fossils, a pet tortoise, and a Gila monster. Osborne decided to publish a complete bibliography of Cope's works, quote, to stand beside those of Marsh and Lady. He did it partly to save Cope's reputation from the Herald article in 1890. It was published in 1931 and called Cope, Master Naturalist. This publication led to Charles Schuchert, who was on Marsh's side, to publishing O.C. Marsh, 
pioneer in paleontology in 1940. <laughs> Marsh was in poor health around the end of his life. Luckily, he didn't have to teach, but he still got a $3,500 yearly salary from Yale. He had Sunday luncheons at his mansion with Yale students and would tell them Wild West stories. He also spent a lot of time writing about his dinosaur discoveries. In 1892, he wrote a survey paper about ceratopsians. In 1896, he wrote about his best-known dinosaurs, and that included Brontosaurus, Camptosaurus, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, in his book, The Dinosaurs of North America. More museums were opening, like the Field Museum in Chicago, which opened in 1895, and more people were looking for dinosaurs. The Peabody Museum wanted to mount a dinosaur skeleton, but Marsh didn't want that. He thought only scientists needed to look at dinosaurs, not the public. He wrote, quote, The dinosaurs seem to have suffered much from both their enemies and their friends. Many of them were destroyed and dismembered long ago by their natural enemies, but more recently their friends have done them further injustice in putting together their scattered remains and restoring them to supposed lifelike forms. So far as I can judge, there is nothing like unto them in the heavens or on the earth or in the waters under the earth. Eventually, Marsh stepped down from the National Academy of Sciences and traveled. In 1898, he got an arterial disease and he started planning for the future. He shipped some of his fossils to the Smithsonian in D.C. and deeded to Yale as a gift his vertebrate fossils. Charles Walcott, Powell's successor as chief of survey, kept trying to get Marsh to send the government their fossils and finish up the survey monographs. Marsh met Walcott in February of 1899. On his way back home, he stopped in New York City for a dinner that was honoring Carl Schurz, former interior secretary, but the hotel was cold and he got sick and stayed in bed all day. When he returned to New Haven, he walked through the rain to the New Haven house from the train station. He was wet and cold, and his aide Bostwick took him home. He died March 19, 1899, at home from pneumonia. One month after he died, the fossils he owed the government were shipped to D.C. There were 80 tons in five freight cars. He'd already shipped more than 30 tons, with type specimens of 53 species. The value was $200,000. The rest of the collection went to Yale. Marsh's collection was, according to Charles Darwin, quote, the best support of the theory of evolution. When Marsh died, he only had $186 in his bank account. However, he had family trusts through George Peabody's will and was able to send $30,000 to the Peabody Museum and $10,000 to the National Academy of Sciences. He didn't leave any money for his younger half-siblings. The Great Hall of Yale's Peabody Museum of Natural History still has mostly bones on display from Marsh. Yale's also building a new lecture hall to be named after Marsh as part of the Yale Science Building. Outside the hall, there will be an exhibition dedicated to Marsh with two dinosaur skulls, a dinosaur trackway, and casts of two Cretaceous animals Marsh found. One of a predatory fish, and one of Hesperornis. After Cope died, he donated his brain and his skeleton to science. And he wasn't the only one to donate his brain. Joseph Lady and John Ryder also donated their brains to science, to the Anthropometric Society. 300 men donated, and it was so anatomists could have the brains of learned men to work on. Ladies was the first. That's interesting, considering Cope was a Quaker. I guess he was a Unitarian by this point, so maybe that was why. Yes, and he was also, I think he became a scientist first. Yeah, there was another piece to this. Cope wanted to have his brain weighed and compared to Marsh's brain, because at the time it was thought that the weight of a brain correlated to intelligence, <laughs> but Marsh didn't donate his brain after his death. It turns out, too, that Lady's brain was larger than Cope's by five grams. <laughs> 
The Anthropometric Society was dissolved in the early 1900s, and its collection went to the Wistaria Institute of Anatomy and Biology, which kept Cope's brain. But in 1966, they gave his skeleton, specimen 4989, to the University of Pennsylvania's Museum of Anthropology. Cope's skull was well-preserved, but not his skeleton, and this was under Professor Lauren Isley's care, an evolutionist. Isley, for some reason, wanted to be buried with Cope, so his nephew Jim Hahn took the bones to Isley's funeral home, then realized that the mortician would find them, so he put the skeleton back in the museum. Isley had also encouraged getting the skeleton buried in the Cope family grave. That didn't work out, so they again went back to the museum. (laughs) Then, in the 1990s, after Jurassic Park came out, Magazine photographer Louis Saihoyos wanted to collect bone war memorabilia as part of a dinosaur book project. He asked to photograph the skeleton and he got permission, and then he signed a permission slip that was similar to a library book, saying that the skull would remain at the academy during its time away from the university museum, but he ended up taking the bones away and kept them for years. He carried the skull in a cardboard box and sprang it on paleontologists in interviews, and he didn't get great responses. <laughs> What was he expecting? (laughs) Unclear. Louis worried about losing the bones, so he had a velvet-lined mahogany box made for the skull. But he spread some stories, like he said that Cope wanted to be the type specimen for Homo sapiens, and that's why he donated his body to science. Some argue this is just an urban legend. Cope didn't have teeth, and he knew that teeth were important to classification. Louis eventually returned the bones to the museum, but only after the museum asked the FBI to look into its whereabouts. (laughs) Martian Cope's rivalry ended up ruining them both, but it was also great for paleontology. Again, before the Bone Wars, there were only nine named species of dinosaurs. Cope and Marsh found more than 25,000 new fossils and named 144 new dinosaurs. Cope named 64 and Marsh named 80. Nine of Copes's are still valid, and 23 of Marsh's are still valid. Even though not all of their dinosaurs are still valid, Marsh and Cope still made valuable contributions. Marsh also argued that birds descended from dinosaurs. Cope published fast and described 1,115 of the 3,200 species of vertebrate fossils known in North America in 1900. Holy cow. Yes. Marsh tended to publish long monographs, and he described 496 new species— His total output was 270 publications. Still a lot. Yes. (laughs) The dinosaurs the two of them named are still some of the most popular ones. They include Allosaurus, Apatosaurus, Brontosaurus, Camarasaurus, Camptosaurus, Ceratosaurus, Coelophysis, Diplodocus, Dryosaurus, Hesperornis, Stegosaurus, and Triceratops. Their rivalry and the public humiliations between Cope and Marsh did, however, give American paleontology a bad reputation in Europe for decades. And their rush to describe bones led to confusion and misconceptions for many years after their deaths. They also damaged fossils and kept each other from finding more fossils. However, an excavation in 2007 and 2008 of a few of Cope and Marsh's sites found there wasn't as much damage as previously thought. Arthur Lakes had painted the fields, so researchers used those to compare them in present day. The team from Morrison Natural History Museum found that lakes hadn't dynamited the most productive quarries in Colorado. They'd only filled them in in the site. Matthew Mossbrucker said that lakes may have lied, quote, because he didn't want the competition up at the quarry, playing mind games with Cope's gang. However, Martian Cope discovered the first complete skeletons and made dinosaurs popular. Bob Bacher said, quote, 
The dinosaurs that came from Como Bluff not only filled museums, they filled magazine articles, textbooks, they filled people's minds. And that's the Bone Wars in a nutshell. That's a large nutshell. Yes. <laughs> but a lot of interesting tidbits. Yes, indeed. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And now, if you're still with us, on to the dinosaur of the day, Hesperonis, which was a request from Lanasaur via our Patreon and Discord. And as a quick reminder, that's one of the perks of being a patron is you can request dinosaurs. So thank you. Hesperonis was a Mesozoic avialan that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Kansas in the U.S., as well as Canada and Russia. It was penguin-like. It was basically a large bird. It was about 5.9 feet, or 1.8 meters long, but it did not have wings. Instead, it had strong hind limbs that it used to swim. You could also say that it was about six feet tall <laughs> because of its penguin-likeness. True. Compared to most dinosaurs, which really are long when they're standing. True. <laughs> Hesperonis' toes were lobed, not webbed, so they were kind of flattened, and that was good for swimming. So, again, didn't fly, but it was great at diving and swimming. Its feet probably came out to its sides near the tail, which means that its legs couldn't go under the body to stand, and so they probably pushed themselves on their bellies on land, like seals. Oh, so maybe it didn't stand upright. Yeah, but if it did, it probably looked like a penguin. Hesperonis was probably good at foot propelling to dive and then not great on walking on land. It was probably only on land for breeding and laying eggs. Hesperonis is similar to Gavia immer, the common loon, which is an extant animal, and it probably moved similarly on land and in water. It had a flattened tail, which may have helped it change direction and go deeper or back towards the surface when underwater. Hesperonis had a long neck and teeth and a beak. The beak was good for catching fish, and it probably used the beak to hold on to prey. The teeth were in the entire lower jaw and the back of the upper jaw. Their palate, the roof of the mouth, had small pits that could lock the lower teeth into place when the jaws were closed. In 1952, Joseph Gregory found that Hesperornis teeth were not in sockets like dinosaurs, but had a longitudinal groove that ran down the beak, similar to mosasaurs. Similarities in mosasaur lower jaws may show that Hesperornis could swallow large, slippery prey. It probably ate fish. Hesperornis lived in subtropical to tropical waters in a marine habitat. However, some of the younger species may have lived in freshwater deposits, so they may have moved, at least to some extent, away from saltwater. In 2016, David Burnham, Bryce Rothschild, and others studied a leg bone that was found in South Dakota in the 1960s and found that the Hesperornis bone had bite marks from a plesiosaur. They compared tooth marks of a juvenile plesiosaur, and it matched the bite marks to within a millimeter. There were signs of infection based on the roughness of the bone, so Hesperonis probably survived the attack. Burnham and Rothschild found that the plesiosaur came from the side of Hesperonis based on the orientation of the bite, and also found it probably fit the whole leg in its mouth. This shows that plesiosaurs may have been opportunistic predators instead of always going after small prey. 
Hesperonis fossils have been found from Arkansas to the Arctic, which is around where the Western Interior Seaway was. And that means Hesperonis may have lived in cool and warm temperatures in the Arctic, or it may have migrated. In 2014, Laura Wilson and Karen Shin looked at the internal bone structure of Hesperonis fossils and of modern-day penguins, including gentooth penguins, which do not migrate for winter, and Adelian chinstrap penguins, which do migrate. They looked for lines of arrested growth, lags, that would have slowed or stopped to respond to stressful events such as Arctic winters or migrations. They didn't find any lags in Hesperonis, but saw that Hesperonis grew to adult size quickly. Modern penguins don't have any signs of Arctic winters or migration stress either. The penguins grow in about a year, so that's why there are no lags. They grow too fast. With Hesperornis, there are several possible reasons for no lags. They were adult-sized quickly, so the stresses associated with migrating or overwintering did not appear in their bone microstructure. Their bones may not be easily molded, and therefore these patterns were not recorded. Or the Arctic climate was not that bad, though it could get below freezing, it was warmer than it is today. The Gentoo penguins grow even faster than the other penguins and Hesperonis, possibly because they need to get to adult size before the winter comes, since they don't migrate. Wilson and Chin said that penguins need to be studied more, which may help answer more questions about Hesperonis. The type species is Hesperonis regalis, and the name means regal western bird. It was discovered by Othniel Charles Marsh in 1871 during his second expedition out west in Kansas with 10 students. He thought it was a diving species. He didn't find the head at the time. In 1872, Marsh went back to Kansas with four students. One of them, Thomas Russell, found a nearly complete skeleton with part of the head with teeth. This and Benjamin Mudge's discovery of Ichthyornis led to Marsh writing in an 1873 paper, quote, The fortunate discovery of these interesting fossils does much to break down the old distinction between birds and reptiles. Hesperonis was part of the kind of pre-bone wars. Some Hesperonis fossils were accidentally sent to Cope and Marsh accused Cope of stealing them, which we went into in great detail <laughs> earlier. Dozens of Hesperonis regalis specimens have been found. Marsh published an illustrated monograph of Hesperonis in 1897 based on many specimens. There are nine species. Some of the species are only known from a single bone or a few bones, but they're considered different species because they were found in different strata or different locations. Marsh named Hesperonis crassipes in 1876. Originally, it was named Lestornis crassipes, based on an incomplete skeleton with teeth and parts of the skull. Hesperonis crassipes was larger than Hesperonis regalis. It had five ribs. Hesperonis regalis at four, and it had slightly different looking bones in the breastbone and lower leg. Marsh named another species Hesperonis gracilis. Another species, Hesperonis altus, was found in Montana in the Judith River formation. They found a partial lower leg. Marsh originally classified it as Coniornis because he thought Hesperonis only lived in Kansas, but others disagreed and now refer to it as Hesperonis altus. In 1915, Schufelt named another species based on one dorsal vertebra and it being smaller than Hesperonis altus. Nesov and Yarka found another Hesperonis in Russia near Volgograd in 1993. More specimens have been referred to it. It's named Hesperonis rossicus and it's a different size from the other ones. It's 4.6 feet or 1.4 meter long. Martin and Lim named four more new species in 2002 based on fossils that had not yet been studied. This includes Hesperonis mengelii and Hesperonis macdonaldi, smaller ones. Also Hesperonis berdi and Hesperonis chowai. These are from South Dakota and Alberta, Canada. You can see Hesperonis in an exhibition dedicated to Marsh that's coming to the Yale Science Building to honor him as an early important Yale scientist. You can also see Hesperonis 
in the game Ark Survival Evolved. And our fun fact, since this episode is long enough already, will be very brief. <laughs> and it's just the single statement that Cope also named Dimetrodon, although Dimetrodon is not a dinosaur. And now I think we've thoroughly covered the Bone Wars. Good job, Sabrina. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that wraps up our 250th episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe to us so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you are a big dinosaur enthusiast, consider joining our community. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash I Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.